Welcome to Friendship Baptist Church's podcast. We might be a small town church, yes, but we are seeing God-sized movement all around us. This podcast is meant to share that movement. It's meant to encourage you throughout your day, and it's to simply be a means to giving God glory. He is so deserving of that glory today. We thank you for being a part of our show today and listening to today's episode. We hope you are blessed by it and that you are moved by the Spirit of God. This is your host, Brother Jerry Horine, and I look forward to today's message. Well, hello and welcome to episode number 21 of Friendship Baptist Church's podcast station. I'm excited you're here. I hope you're having a fabulous day today. I know uh, God is good and, and therefore every day is a day that he has made. Let us be happy and rejoice in it. So I hope you are doing that very thing today and I hope that you are blessed today. Well, our last episode, we started um, the the workshop that Billy Hanks Jr. has has did. It's called Operation Multiplication, and and I let you tune into uh, a part of that uh, workshop that he has done. And and uh, I just uh, listened to the rest of the the workshop over this last week, and and really just uh, remembered how blessed I was from hearing this vision and this. Um, uh, uh, principle from the scriptures that he finds and he he shares. And so I just want to give the rest of it to you. I know I initially said I was probably going to do it uh, week by week, but I'm going to give the rest of it to you. I know last week was a uh, last podcast episode was, was kind of long. It was an hour. This one's going to be long too. I'm probably looking at around two and a half plus hours. And, uh, and that's okay. I want you to be able to listen to this on your own time. You don't have to listen to it all in one sitting, but I wanted it all to be there. And, and your uh, podcast app will, will save the where you left off and and just uh, tune in when you're driving or when you're when you're exercising or whenever you usually listen to your podcast. I just uh, pray that you would listen to this and, and catch on to this because this is something that that I really feel the Lord laying on my heart to do here at Friendship and and that's uh, to to get uh, a, a process a cycle going <clears throat> where we where we do this very thing we make disciples and we uh, make disciple makers and so i look forward to this listen prayerfully as you listen to this and i'm going to pray for us too just ask the Lord to use this because I really believe that he's going to and and I'm praying for our church to just take hold of this in a mighty way and uh, and however role you play a part in that as well and so let's pray and then I'll I'll let you uh, tune into to what he has to say so Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we just love you, Father. We're so thankful for you, Jesus. Lord, we're thankful for you being the one who who truly uh, uh, set the example of making disciples, Father. Lord, you're the one that that enacted this. This is nothing new. This is nothing uh, uh, shiny or or, or uh, uh, just uh, that looks good. This is biblical. This is you, Lord. This is your example that you have called us to follow. And so, Father God, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to, to get a desire to make disciples, a desire to to uh, build one another up, to take uh, new believers and new members and, and uh, mature them, Lord, through your grace and through your hand. And, and Lord, that you would allow us to play a, a small part of that, Father. Lord, that we would make friends, Lord. Lord, that when someone comes into our church, they would automatically know that they're going to be uh, given a friend, Lord, that's going to walk and pray with them. Oh, how valuable that is, Lord Jesus, just to say as that, that you know when you join this church that there's going to be somebody there to 
to love you and to pray with you and to help answer some questions and, and all the things that we deal with as we're, we're growing on our faith with Christ. And so I pray that you help us here at Friendship to, to enact this, Lord Jesus. I pray that you touch the listeners here today, Lord. Lord, if they would, uh, feel an urge in, in what you're calling them to do in, in part of this, Lord, would, would they come and talk with me? Would they talk to you first about it, Lord? Would they, would they, uh, figure out where their role is and, and, and be obedient to that, Jesus? Lord, I pray that you help me and give me discernment and and how we uh, put this forward and and what this looks like. And so, Lord Jesus, I just cry out to you, Lord, and and just trust in you and knowing that you, Father, that you are the mighty God that that will uh, ultimately uh, give the increase, give the growth, Lord Jesus. And Father, you have been given in the increase and have been given the growth. But Father, I pray that that we are not bad stewards in that, but that we take this growth and this increase you have given us, Lord. And Lord, that we we work at at uh, uh, surrendering to you and in 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 the fact that that you are going to help us mature this increase in this growth, Lord, these, these new Christians and father that we would, uh, uh, just, uh, hold that responsibility with, with the weight that it comes with Lord, knowing that you have called us to do that. Lord, let us be obedient to your call. Father, I love the idea of this multiplication that he, he, uh, that Billy Hanks talks about father, because this is your idea. This is your, your principle, Lord Jesus. And so father, I pray that you use us, use our church to make disciples for the kingdom of God, to further your kingdom, to all the ends of the earth, Lord, I pray these things in the mighty, mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles and turn with me to another important verse. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1. Now, Paul is giving us a principle here which we need to build into our ministries. Would someone be kind enough to just stand and read that for us? Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. All right. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Should any new believer be able to be safe following in the footsteps of a pastor, Sunday school teacher, deacon, lay leader in the Lord's church? If they can't, we're in trouble. You see, Paul is saying... You that are new in the faith, you that are growing in the faith, just follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Years ago, it was my privilege to be in Africa for a series of evangelistic campaigns. I'm smiling because it was such a wonderful experience, but with humorous moments. And one particular night, I was invited to go crocodile hunting after having preached four times that day. And they knew my great weakness as a Texan from a ranch, and they said, we'd love to take you hunting. Well, that was just, you know, crocodile hunting was too much to pass up. So I said, how do we hunt for crocodile? And they said, well, we're going to go in a little Lone Star 10 boat, and we're going to take a battery with lights, and, and they explained the whole process to me, and a, and a harpoon and a baseball bat and a 22 rifle. And I said, wait a minute, what? We're going out to hunt for a real big, you know, crocodile, and you're going to take all this paraphernalia, and you're going to take a 22 rifle. I said, didn't anybody have a real gun? And uh, they said, no, that's all we've got, but you have to shoot them right between the eyes to get them. So I said, well, we'll try. So anyway, I got in the Land Rover, and we went out through the grass for miles and got to this big river in the middle of the night. We went out about 1 o'clock in the morning. 
And I was so tired having already preached four times that day, and, but I just couldn't miss this. So the missionary makes a mistake. He's trying to back the boat into the water off the edge of a little precipice. And by accident, he just puts too much power, too much gas to it, and, and, and the trailer goes off and down in the water. Well, this lets the boat start floating out into this river where the crocodile live. We're in pitch darkness, absolutely just dark beyond description because there's no lights from any community out there in Africa. Just, it's just dark. And he starts wading out into the water to get the boat. And he's up to, up to here. And he says, just step where I step. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this is crazy. We've come to hunt crocodile, and now they're going to... Oh, and he rolled his pants up. Why would you do that? Just show that white little leg <laughs> to those crocodiles. And I'm just thinking, this is insane. And every time I look at this verse, I think about the fact that I, however, said, how many years have you been hunting crocodile? He said, 25. So I rolled my pants up, and I tried to step exactly where he stepped because he was the only teacher I had in Africa, and I made it safely out, and we did have some tremendous hunt that night and so forth. But I fell asleep about 2.30 in the morning in the bottom of the boat. <laughs> but the thing that I did not say to him was, you're egotistical to try to tell me what to do. I'm a grown man. Do you all ever have that little bit of independent streak of sin that comes into your heart? You see, what God is looking for is humility and teachability. And the kind of person that will grow in discipleship and in mentoring is somebody who will learn from you by following your example. You're not trying to be egotistical when you teach someone how to memorize scripture or pray or witness. You're trying to help them for the rest of their life. And if they think that it's egotism, then they are not the right person or they don't have the right spirit for you to be working with them. I hope that makes sense to you. There's no room for pride in this process in any shape, form, or fashion. Zero. Because what you're dealing with is simply somebody else was kind enough to instruct you, now you're instructing somebody else. Now let me look around here quickly for somebody with a good looking pair of shoes. You've got it. Is it Jay? Do you go by? Okay, Jay. How many years have you been tying shoelaces? About 48. 48 years of experience. Would this make him an expert in the field? You know your stuff. We're impressed. Jay, uh, do you think that you've been doing it long enough that you could do it with your eyes closed if you had to? Yes, sir. This man really is an expert. Jay, we're all from Texas. We've never seen shoes. We just wear boots. Uh, let's say that we've come to a seminar on shoelace tying, and that we're very interested to learn how to do it. That's sort of a newfangled thing to us. Uh, if I were to ask you to just slip your hands behind your back there right quick. Good. Now, Jay, you've been doing it 48 years. You can do it in the dark. You can do it with your eyes closed. You're a man of experience. Would you please tell us how to tie shoelaces? <laughs> Jay cut right to the heart of it. 
He said, no, I can't, but I can what? Show you. Now, that's the difference between teaching and training in a nutshell. I can teach you church history, but I've got to show you how to win someone to Christ. That's why Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He wanted to demonstrate it for them. Teaching is dealing with the communication of knowledge at a conceptual and theoretical level, but training gets super practical. For instance, if you're going to learn how to be a plumber, how do you learn that? You do not go to a college course on plumbing and sit in a class. You become an apprentice and you go out with an expert plumber and learn how to make $50 an hour. Have you all played a plumbing bill lately? I did last week. Now, and it was just a little drip, y'all, just a little drip. And they fixed it in 15 minutes, and it's $50. Now, the fun of it is, though, I learned to do bricklaying by working with a bricklayer, plumbing by being with a plumber. I learned how to fly a plane by being with a pilot. I learned how to operate by spending quality time, lots of time, hopefully, with a surgeon who is an intern and is going to get more responsibility progressively as he or she have had experience. Does this make sense? Training is critical if we're going to show people how to do things for the benefit of themselves and others. What's missing in Christendom? Where's our weak link? You go to seminary, you can learn to preach, for sure. We have excellent preachers all over America. You can learn to teach, college and seminary. How many pastors are here? So I can just kind of get a... Okay, it's a very large number of us. Okay. Would I not be accurate in saying that wherever, however y'all got your education, that it really wasn't training, it was teaching? It was by and large teaching. Now, if you got training, it probably came from a pastor that loved you and cared about you that was an older brother who kind of looked over your shoulder and gave you some advice. My father-in-law did that for me. Roy Fish did that for me and, and uh, a number of others. Grady Wilson did it for, for years until he went to be with the Lord. And you say, well, Billy, why don't I just don't understand. I told you, I meant it. When I'm 80, I hope to have somebody 90 discipling me. Because you see, I constantly am in a learning curve. And we need to keep on, keeping on, pressing toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. If you give up on the training process, being on the receiving end, you'll be the loser. Now, what I'm trying to say is, don't ever stop learning. Don't think you've arrived. Don't quit growing. How in the world did we learn to tie shoelaces? Let me, let me tell you how you learn to tie shoelace. Some caregiver who loved you sat down and put your little hands on those strings when you were very young. And time after time after time, they moved your hands until they showed you, not told you how, showed you how to tie that knot. Right? That's the same way we teach new Christians to witness. It's the same way we teach new believers to pray. We pray with them and pray with them. Give them a little responsibility. 
Robert Coleman, who to me is the, the master, he's the top teacher we have in the world in this field. Dr. Coleman very, very wisely said that Jesus gave the apostles their first assignment to do something non-theological so they could succeed at it. They didn't understand theology. They were fishermen, tax collectors, and goodness knows what all. And they were not trained theologians. Neither were they Sadducees, nor were they schooled like Paul would be later as a Pharisee. But the first 12, he gave the assignment to go out and baptize people. That's the first thing they did. Stand in the river and baptize people rather than Jesus doing it. I had never thought about it that way. But he said he gave them an assignment they could do and succeed at it and participate in the process. Now, along this line, as we go back to the basics, there's three major ministries our Lord had. We've gone over this. Let's repeat it. One-on-one, one-on-some, one-on-many. And if we're going to have a balanced ministry, let's take a baby grand piano and let that be your symbol in your mind for a minute. Baby grand's a beautiful instrument. Do we have any pianists here? Several of you, okay? Let me ask you, sir. If we take one of the three legs, any of the three legs, off of a baby grand, will it still play? He's saying it will, and it will. But will it play properly? No way. Will not. If you take preaching away from a church and still have training and teaching, pastors, we're out of a job. <laughs> but there's a lot more problem than that. The church doesn't get the edification and the challenge and encouragement and the instruction that they're supposed to get. Now, you take proclamation, put that leg on the piano, but you take away teaching. You've got training, you've got the one-on-one, -on -one, you've got the preaching, but you don't have any Sunday school, no small groups, no Bible teaching. Is the church in trouble? You bet it is. But, but, if you have great preaching and you have good teaching, but you have weak training or no training, what's going to happen? Church will still function. Piano will still play. But it won't be proper. Be out of tune. Kind of off-key won't be working the way it's supposed to. You have four good tires on a car, let one of them go flat, I guarantee you a rough ride. Now, how long are you willing to put up with it? There's an illustration I like from West Texas about a farmer and a rancher, we'll say, that had a bucket, and he had a feed trough here for his livestock, and the windmill was over here, and he took this bucket, and he'd go over and Several times a day, he'd take the water out of the windmill and go put it in the trough for the livestock. But as the years went by, a large hole developed slowly in that bucket. But it didn't happen overnight. The leak got bigger and bigger. And as the years went by, the leak was so big that he was losing 40% of his water between the windmill and the trough. But he didn't want to face the fact that he was going to have to stop doing it the way he'd always done it <laughs> and patch the hole. So what did he do to compensate? He ran faster. And you could just see it. And it made a big mess. 
between the windmill and the water trough. And finally, somebody said, Fred, you're going to burn out. You're, you're getting exhausted doing your ministry the way you're doing it. And you're winning people to Christ. But the take-home pay is it's not happening. You're losing your people. Now, I can't give you a George Barna statistic on this. I wish I could. And maybe someday he'll give it to us. But after doing this for 25 years now with churches in about 40 denominations and lots of countries, I can tell you this. My best guess is that if George Barna did do his research on it and did it nationally or internationally, he's likely to find that we're losing about 40% of our new members within about 18 months after they join your fellowship. And the tragedy is you don't know it. They slip out and they're quietly gone out the back door before anybody realizes there's a problem. And you say, well, where do they end up? I was on a plane some time ago and a fellow sat next to me who was Jewish and brilliant. He was over construction for Zales Jewelers. Had about 1,800 stores or something like that, I believe, that he told me that he was responsible for their maintenance, their upkeep and new buildings and all this kind of thing. It was a big, big responsibility. He had been led to Christ by a Baptist layman, joined a Baptist church, and went to the pastor and said, you know, I've been a member for months and months, and I'm going to Sunday school, I'm going to church, but something's missing. I've just got tons of questions that are not being answered, and I can't get anybody to give me any time to teach me the Bible and answer these questions doctrinally that I have from my Jewish background to help me grow. And the pastor didn't assign anybody to work with him or help him. Just said, keep going to Sunday school, you'll eventually get it. In the meantime, a JW showed up at the door. A couple of them. And they said, oh, we love the Lord. We use the Bible. He didn't know the difference. And said, we'll come to your house. We'll come every day if you want us to. Until all of your questions are answered. He sat there telling me this story, and I knew where we were headed. I said, let me ask you something. Did they teach you about the Trinity and the deity of Christ? He said, I don't believe in the Trinity. I once believed in the deity of Christ, but I don't anymore. Mm. Are you all feeling this? And by the time we got through, I said, sir, I'd like to prove the Trinity from the Scripture to you if you're ready. Or if you're up to it. He said, I'm up to it. He'd been a JW for 15 years. And by the time we got out, there was smoke coming up from those two seats when the plane landed. I mean, it was hot. And there was truth and error and deep conflict going on. And as I got off the plane, my mind went to these words, malpractice, malpractice, malpractice. Should never have happened. That man would have made a mighty soul winner. A tremendous Christian. But as he is today, he's apostate, to the best of my understanding. He's rejected the deity of Christ. Now, I don't know all that all that this means, but I'm telling you one thing it says to me clearly. We did a lousy job with follow-up, but a good job with evangelism. 
We trained a layman to go out and win somebody to the Lord, but we didn't teach him what to do with a fish when he catch one. It's time to change. You will send away your day of grace. The church will run out of opportunities in the Western culture to correct this problem if we keep putting it off. It's time to take the bucket, realize there's a big hole in it, and patch it while we can. Would you please be a part of the leadership team and your denominational structure to help get the message back to everybody that it's time to change. We need not just preaching, not just teaching, we need training in the church. Now you can call something training. In Baptist life, years ago, we used to have something we call church training. Largely that was a misnomer, however, and we've come to realize that. It was church teaching and good teaching, but there was a very little training in it. Because as long as y'all are sitting here and I'm teaching you, this is not training. Okay, now let's, let's take another uh, quick verse. How does training occur? It takes observation for the most part. But look at Philippians 4.9. This is a great verse. And I'm going to give you, you look it up in your translation. I'm going to give you a new translation that I like a lot. Very, very simple Easy translation. It says, all that you heard me say, that equates to teaching. All that you saw me do, that equates to training. Put that into practice and the God of peace shall be with you. Now let's let some of you read it from your translation. It'll be more complicated than that, but it's going to say the same thing. Someone who has it. The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and that God of peace shall be with you. All right. The things you've learned, heard, and seen is the gist of it. Now, we're good at the first part as Christians. We're good at teaching, and we say a lot. But our lives are our real pulpit. And so they need to be able to see what we're doing. I got a kick out of this years ago. A, a man that trained me for probably 30 years, you think, says, how old are you anyway? No, I had several people working with me at one time. Uh, not, not just one at a time. But I'd have a, a layman who was training me, and I'd be working one-on-one -on -one with him, and then there'd be uh, a, a minister like T.W. or Grady that would be training me, or Max Barnett, who was a student worker back in college days, who would train me. And um, I've had about eight men train me in my life. And some of them have done it at the same time, but I just wasn't you know, with the same person at the same time. But this businessman, Wayne Watts, who wrote the wonderful book, The Gift of Giving, I'm telling you, there's no better book for your folks to read on giving than The Gift of Giving. Wayne's favorite time of a worship service was always the offering. He could hardly wait to see how the offering was done. And he loved to give. His wife and I were sitting next to each other in a service once in a Methodist congregation where we were visiting that Sunday and she leaned over and said, Bill, she said, Wayne's never been in this church. He doesn't know anybody in this church. But he'll probably give more than anybody in the worship service this morning because that person just gave a wonderful offertory appeal. And he says he is excited about that offertory appeal. And I just peeked over and Wayne wrote a big check and said, praise God, that was a wonderful offering appeal. Now, fellas, take note. <laughs> All right. Now, 
Wayne was a giver and a witness. He witnessed to men all through the day about his Lord. He had a, a big oil company. He was a big businessman. And he retired in order to be our chairman of our board for the ministry. And he told me one day, he said, Bill, I went out of big business into the biggest business. The winning of the world for Christ. Amen. And I will tell you, you laymen that are here, take note of that. There's nothing that you can do that's more important than sharing your witness for Jesus Christ. Amen. Because heaven and earth will pass away. All that we make will turn to dust. And all the money that we collect will rot and spoil. Heaven and earth will pass away. But His Word will remain forever. And Wayne understood that. And I can remember one day when he was discipling me, and Wayne said, Bill, I'd like to see your checkbook. I said, you what? He said, I want to see the stubs in your checkbook. I said, Wayne, I'll be happy for you to do that, but I, I'm terribly curious what we're doing. Why? He said, because Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And he said, son, I want to find out where your heart is. Ooh, that's tough. I gave him my checkbook. I've been giving more ever since. <laughs> now, I'll tell you something. Until new Christians turn loose of this world's stuff, they have not been discipled the way they're supposed to be yet because he's Lord of all. And we don't own anything. And the quicker they figure that out, the better off we're all going to be. You and I don't own the shirt on our back. Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all they that dwell therein, and we just are passing through. All right? And the quicker we fall out of love with the world and in love with the Master, the freer we'll be. And I want to tell you, having worked with Dr. Graham, there's nobody I know that is less attached to or in love with stuff than Billy Graham. He just is just not affected by it at all and not impressed by it at all. And isn't that good? It'll get you. And we have got to learn to teach new Christians that the priority of life is Christ first, Christ second, Christ third, Christ fourth. Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Years ago, we went broke about, oh, I guess there were 10 of us over in Taiwan in a mission. We were all college and seminary students. We went down to Harlan Spurgeon's room for breakfast that morning, who was, was a missionary there, and said, Harlan, we got some good news and some bad news. We're broke, but they'll feed us on the plane when we go back to the United States. We won't die. But we're supposed to stay here two more weeks and hold crusades in Taiwan. He said, no problem. Let's go to God. He's the one that makes it. He's the one that gives it. He led us in prayer. We joined our hearts, nine of us that morning, at the breakfast table in Taiwan. And at noon, a telegram arrived from Maxi Jarman of the Jarman Shoe Company. We didn't even know him. But I'd written him a letter months before saying that we were going over to do this ministry. I'd heard that he was a godly man. My letter had fallen behind his credenza. His secretary found it the day before we went broke. She pulls it out and gives it to Mr. Jarman and that their, that company was worth about a half billion dollars at that time. He opens my little letter, reads it, 
and said, I'll bet these young people need some help. He didn't know how much we needed it. We got the telegram at noon, having prayed at breakfast. We opened the telegram and it said, I'm so sorry that your letter, written three months ago, fell behind my credenza. It was discovered yesterday. Hopefully it's not too late to be of some small help to the Lord's work. May this $5,000 be a blessing to your young people as you try to share the witness of Jesus Christ in Asia. Maxi Jarman. I got back. I thought his number would be unlisted because he was one of our nation's wealthiest men at that time. He's with the Lord now. I called him. His number was not unlisted. Here I am about 25 years old. I get him on the line. Beautiful voice. I loved his North Carolina accent. I said, Mr. Jarman, I just want to thank you. I'm one of the young men from Texas that received your gift in Taiwan, and we wanted to thank you so much. He said, oh, no. He said, you never have to thank me for any gift I ever send. He said, because I don't own anything. He said, everything I have is not mine. God has just given me the joy of writing my signature on his checks, and he tells me where to send them, and that's the biggest one I have. And Wayne always used to say, it's easy to give away what you don't own. Does that make sense to you all? That's why you're going to find a chapter by Wayne Watts on giving in the material for every new Christian in a call to growth that you just picked up. You'll be blessed by it, I guarantee you. Now, let's think about it. How did I learn to give? Ran around with a giver. How did I learn to pray? Grady Wilson taught me to pray. We prayed hundreds of times on our knees together. How did I learn to witness? Max Barnett showed me how back in college. Took me out and did it. Showed me how to do it. How did I learn to whatever? Study the Bible. A godly man sat down time after time and studied the Bible with me. Get it? That's what they're looking for. The next person who joins your church is looking for that kind of care. You say, well, wow, wait a minute. How are we going to do this? And it really isn't that hard. All you have to do is take the people you've already got, link them up with the people who come, and then give your people that, that you're asking to do the responsibility of discipling a little track to run on for security because you don't want them to be scared to death to do it. But friendship is pretty easy. And when you give a person a little curriculum to follow, and it's based on simple New Testament verses and teaching, it works very smoothly. And we have thousands upon thousands of people doing it all over the world. All right? Now let's take a look at another verse. Take a look with me right quick at uh, 2 Timothy 2.2. This verse is the basis for multiplication I'm sure there are others, but this one's an excellent one. Paul was discipled by Barnabas, right? And then Paul writes a letter to Timothy. And he says in 2 Timothy 2.2, The things which you have seen or received, heard from me, in the presence of many what? Witnesses. Commit unto faithful men who will teach others also. Dr. Graham was much impacted by this verse when Dawson Trotman taught him this verse many, many years ago, probably in the 40s. There's four generations in it. And Billy says the first generation is Paul, 
The second is Timothy. The third is the faithful people. Ladies, you're not left out, of course. It's men and women. And then who will teach what? Others also. That's the fourth generation. Multiplication is one person teaching another and another as you freely receive, freely give. Now let's say that I lead someone to Christ or you lead someone to Christ and there's two of us. And let's say that I, in that process, I'm going to make myself a layman in your church for a moment. Let's say that I have become familiar with the little tool that you're going to be receiving today, a call to joy. Let's say that, a call to joy. Why do we call it a call to joy? Because Jesus said in John 10, 10b, I have come that they might have life and have it how? More abundantly. A professor in Africa, in Kenya, Inas Weswa, who teaches discipleship in uh, Lamuru, uh, named this. And uh, he, of course, speaks Swahili and he speaks English. And he said, we need to tell new Christians that their life is a call to joy. And it is. Paul said, even in jail, he said, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say what? rejoice. Do we live in a day and a time and a culture when people need to learn to rejoice again? Oh man, we're, we're stressed out, we're uptight, we're worried, we're bombarded with negative stuff on the television constantly. It's time to get back to the happiness of the Christian life, old-fashioned joy. Now, when you have a new believer, are they usually excited? You bet they are. And the joy of the Lord fills their heart. What we do is take the older believer, put them with the new believer, and for two months they make their way slowly through a call to joy. Then when they've completed this, for four months they go through a much thicker book. <laughs> we don't want to intimidate them by giving them a thick one first. We want them to feel successful doing something small. Then we take them into a call to growth, which is where they learn to share their faith, pray, do serious Bible study, memorize scripture, and disciple others. So this is for getting a quiet time started, learning to take sermon notes, getting some assurance that they are indeed a Christian, getting their feet on the ground, and then moving them from there into discipleship and growth. Got it? Two months, four months. Now let's say that I'm working with that person and because I, this is what I would do. And I would say, Fred, now that you're a Christian, I want you to join me every morning in having a daily quiet time. You'll do it in your home and I'll do it in mine, but we'll both know that we're each doing it. And we'll hold each other accountable. Uh, that is to say, when we meet together every week, we'll discuss what we learn from God and we'll exchange what we've written down in our spiritual journal. They will have a little journal in their packet that they receive when they join the church, and it looks like this. And you'll have it in your material. The journal has a suede cover that's removable, designed to keep it clean and to keep it neat, but it's designed to last for a quarter of a year. In it, there are several sections. Very simple. This is the daily quiet time section. They write down what they learned that morning, what they prayed about that morning, and what they intend to do about it. Insight, prayer, application. Together, insight, prayer, application.
The scripture says, don't just be hearers of the word, but what? Doers. And we're trying to emphasize the fact there's behavior change, attitude change. Therefore, if anybody be in Christ, he is a new creature. So we're going to be working with that as our model. And Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, right through the week, they have a daily quiet time. Once a week, they meet with me for coffee, hot apple pie with ice cream or melted cheese on it at the Cracker Barrel because it's fat-free, sugar-free, and guiltless. Uh, and um, wherever you want to do it is great. Your home or a restaurant is fine. But you need to always have food in your meeting when you're training the new member or the new Christian. And they must not see themselves as a project. They must see this as fellowship time and friendship. Never, never, never a homework assignment. Okay? You say, Bill, how do you know this? Lots of failure and growing success over 25 years to the place where now we're having tremendous success. It's been slow. But we found out that you better have food and they better see it as friendship if you want it to work. Okay? In our culture. Pretty much worldwide, actually. All right? What's the next section? Sermon notes and Bible study notes. When they go to Sunday school, go to your growth group, go to your cell group, they need to take it with them. Write down what the Holy Spirit's teaching them through the Word. When they hear you preach, they need to take sermon notes. And the discipler is given instruction in this material to show them how to do all that. Who is going to benefit more, the trainee or the trainor? You got it. Your lay leader, your deacon, your elder, presbyter, steward, whatever you call them in your particular denominational life. That leader who is going to be working with the new member, I guarantee you, he or she will grow more than they will. And they'll be blessed. And you'll see revival come in their lives. You say, well, Bill, how do you start this in a church? We recommend that you take your hot-hearted people and put them together that you've already got. Let's say that you've got a Bible study group and you've got 10 uh, people in it. I'm going to say it's a ladies' group just for ease of simplicity of the illustration. Ten ladies. Probably three or four of those ladies, hopefully four, will say out of the ten, I, I, I don't have a voice to sing in the choir. I'm not a Bible study leader. I'm not an EE and some of the other ministries of our church, but I, I surely can be a friend to a new member, and I can show them how to pray and love them and walk with them and help them share their faith. Even though I'm not a great soul winner, I'm willing to pray and start being a better one than I am. How many of you would like to be better than you are? I think it's 100% of us. All right? So we take our people where they are and paint a picture of where we're going and do some vision casting, and we grow together in the grace and the knowledge and effectiveness of ministry in our Lord. So we start where we are. And we've seen hundreds of churches completely changed over a process of doing this. Now you say, well, how does it begin? Very simply, if you've got 10 ladies, let's say that you've got four that are interested in being disciplers, you'd say, okay, gals, y'all pair up. Two of you that are good friends, just agree that you're going to learn how to do this together. These two ladies meet together over a meal or over a piece of pie, whatever they like, not on church time, but on their time. How many of you are very faithful to eat? I mean, we're disciplined, aren't we? 
21 times a week we don't miss, we're faithful. All right? Now, pick one of those 21 times a week, and the two ladies who are dedicated Christians get together, each with their material, and they role play, and this little book guides them through how to disciple a new Christian or a new member. So before we do it on a live new member or new Christian, we practice doing it with each other. Make sense? Okay. Takes about three months. And let's say that you've got uh, 10 Bible study groups in your church. Well, that means you'd probably have about 30 or 40 people doing this because you'd probably have about three or four, maybe even two, in each group that's getting ready to welcome a new member that joins that group. Whenever your church has a new member come, the first thing you typically do, no matter what denomination you're with, you always end up, because I've checked it out, trying to get that new Christian to get into a Bible study group. Y'all agree? Call it anything you please. That's what we try to do. And when they land in that group, that's one on some, they also need a mentor. They need a person in the group to adopt them one on one. So they will meet for a meal once a week with somebody who cares about them. And you know what? They're not going to leave your church because they're going to feel loved. Now you say, but Billy, what if it's a retired missionary coming home from the field? Or what if it's a person that's been a Sunday school teacher for 25 years? Well, they sure don't need to go through a call to joy. You know, if they're already having a daily quiet time and have been doing it for years and you know, have their feet on the ground spiritually, and they don't need to go through a call to joy. Skip it. What do they need? A friend in your church. I'll give you an illustration of that in a minute. We skip a call to joy, but we do a call to growth with that mature believer who's joining your fellowship. You say, well, why? Because I don't care if they are a returned retiring missionary. They don't know everything there is to know about prayer. And this is half of this material is on prayer. And half is on witnessing and sharing their faith. And how many of you feel like you ever get proficient enough in that? Uh, none of us. And do you ever get tired of praising God? No way. So the Bible studies, the reading, and everything that's in here is universally needed by all of us. And it's the nine authors are from about four different denominations, and they're all evangelical Christians and good friends of Billy Graham, etc. I mean, they're good guys and gals. So call to growth is what you'll go into immediately if you're a more mature Christian joining the church, and you'll be mentored by somebody that'll be your friend. Now you say, well, wait a minute. Uh, how many percentage need to go through a call to joy? Nationally, we have found that about 72-73% of the people joining churches have never been discipled where they were in the last church where they were. So they're moving to your fellowship, but they're not moving mature. They're moving teachable. If you put it off and don't do it within the first couple Sundays and get on it right away, they'll become less teachable. So if they're a new Christian, they go through a call to joy and then through a call to growth. If they're a moving, transferring Christian, but they've never been personally discipled by anybody, chances are they will eat this up. Now, Barna has a statistic I hadn't heard of till yesterday. And this book says that in Barna's research, 
76% of new members, when asked if they would like to be worked with one-on-one and help to grow, said that they would highly value the privilege and opportunity of doing that. They're ready. We're just not doing it yet. I've worked with this new Christian. I've taken him for six months with me. He's been praying for the chance to witness. He's had 180 quiet times by the end of a half a year. How many of y'all would like to see that? A new member, new believer, already had 180 quiet times. He's memorized by that time. We don't start him in Scripture memory until a call to growth. We have four different translations in the back for him to choose from. And you tear out the memory cards. They're right here. You've got a plastic container in your packet to put them in. He carries that in his pocket or she carries it in her purse. And once a week they learn a verse. And they start that after they've been Christians for about two months. You say, well, why did you wait for two months? Because we didn't want to overload them. We've tried it. And we find that they're ready for it after they've been Christians for maybe eight, ten weeks. And we began to ease them into Scripture memory. They began to hide God's Word in their heart. Now, how many of you would be pleased if you had a, your next generation of new believers had about maybe 13 or 14 verses committed to memory by the first six months they were in the church? Okay? And they'd been praying for the opportunity to share their faith every morning. And uh, God had given them witnessing opportunities and they'd probably already led their first person to Christ in the first six months that they were a member of your church. We're having this happen regularly. Just normal. Because they know where all the lost people are. So consequently, there's a whole flock of potential new Christians right around them. We brought a man here two, two and a half weeks ago to speak at the evangelism conference for uh, the Baptist churches here in the state who has only been a Christian two and a half years. He is in Oklahoma. Fourth grade education. Tremendous drinking problem. Total alcoholic before he became a Christian. God sobered him up, gave him his wife back. She was estranged from him. His kids came back. He quit cussing and beating them up. He cleaned up. He went back to the bars and began to witness to all his old drinking buddies. Some of them decked him, one in particular. He got up, didn't hit him back, and said, I would have hit you back in the old days, but now I'm just going to tell you about Jesus till you finally get saved. He kept witnessing. I've been with Steve on four occasions now in the last two and a half years. He went through a call to join, a call to growth, with the director of evangelism for the Baptist for that state, Jimmy Kennard. And Jimmy discipled him. But his reading skills were so low, instead of taking a half a year to go through it, it took him a full year. But he won 42 men to Christ in two and a half years. Right at 20 of them have now been baptized at his church. They're bringing their families. And there are several rows deep of new believers and seekers who are coming Sunday by Sunday because of this one man who's been discipled. Would it excite y'all to see that begin to happen in your church? Well, it can, and it will. Now, I want you to travel with me in your mind back to your home, back to your church field, and think about me being one of your lay people. And I have invested my life for six months quietly, privately, over meals with a new believer who has grown and who's led somebody else to Christ. Now as we look up, there's still two, but I began to look for the opportunity to lead someone else to the Lord. I've been praying each day for the chance to witness.
And in the next 180 days, God answers my prayer many times, I get to plant a lot of seed. And let's say that one seed out of 180 seeds germinates and grows. So I lead someone else to Christ. And guess what? So does John, whom I discipled for that last six months. And by the end of a year, he's not only been discipled, but he's led someone else to the Lord, and I've led somebody else to the Lord. Now that's normal Christianity, y'all. This is intentional living for Christ. You have not because you what? And if we're willing to go along, just kind of la 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 la, but with no intentionality, we can. And we'll be mediocre Christians forever. But your people are fed up with that. you got a lot of them that are hot-hearted and ready to go. Now, what happens next? There's four of us in the second year. But there's not four ordinary people. There's four growing people. Growing, witnessing, praying, caring, excited Christians. So we become four. And then more time passes. The fourth year, there's 16 of us. I've only led four of them myself to the Lord. But I've trained the four that I've won. And they're giving me children and grandchildren. Another period of time passes. Six years goes by before you know it. How many of you would agree with that? The older you get, the faster it goes. And here we are. Six years has passed, and now there's 64. Now, I've only had the joy of leading six of them to the Lord, but there's 64 of them out there. Eight years, 256. Ten years, 1,024. Now, we'll stop there for a minute. That's with just me doing this by myself. One man in your church, a, a plumber. I've won 10 men to Christ in a decade. One per year. I've prayed for the chance to witness over 3,500 times because I've been doing it every morning. And I made a commitment to God and to you that I would join you as my pastor in that commitment. I would become a prayer warrior. I'd get serious. How many of you feel like out of 3,500 prayers for the chance to witness, it's not unrealistic that 10 people would come to know Christ? I mean, you gotta, you, y'all, it's just got to get you eventually. All right? Now, you say, well, how do we get up to this thousand deal? This is unbelievable. Because if 10 people in our church did it, we're talking 10,000. If 20 people did it in our church, we're talking 20,000. Uh-oh, you're beginning to get excited. But let's just say that God prospers and blesses us to live longer than 10 years. How many of y'all, if you really could, if God would allow and bless it, you'd be willing to live longer than 10 more years? <laughs> All right, let's, let's check it a little further here. 12 years, it jumps to an incredible 4,096. 13 years, we hit 8,000. That's just me, just this one plumber, and I've only won 13 people to Christ. Now it happens. I've lived 20 full years. Now I'm 56 right now. Let's say that I go to 76. That's not too unrealistic. My dad is 83. My mother's 80, no, 84. Mother's 85. My grandmother was 96 when she died. Pretty good chance. 
You say, this is unbelievable. If there were two of us in the church doing this, there'd be two million. If there were ten, it'd be ten million. Why haven't we done it? I can tell you in a skinny minute. Because we've been doing it by addition, not multiplication. Wrong method. Right message. Right doctrine. Wrong method. We've been pulpit-centered, preacher-centered, not lay ministry-oriented. This is the hour of the laity. Brothers and sisters, we're to equip the saints for the work of their ministry. You say, well, when do we start? <laughs> Just as soon as you get out this door. I mean, we can't start quick enough. You say, but let's be realistic. Okay. Jesus had Judas. I understand that. And I agree. Judas did not reproduce. He did not multiply. Neither did Demas. Demas forsook Paul for the love of this world. And you'll have some heartaches. I've had two or three. I got three buddies on the shelf out of those 31 guys that I've trained through the years. Three are on the shelf today. Two of the three on the shelf are there because of immorality. One of them was pastoring a church with 9,000 members when it happened. Broke our hearts. Now listen to me. God is a God of second chances, but unto whom much is given, much is required. And when you're given the opportunity and the privilege and the responsibility for spiritual leadership, you have a responsibility to have your walk and your talk be the same. Okay? Pray for me, I'll pray for you. We're all targets and the devil's still very alive and very active. Now you say, well, Billy, where do you go from there? I want to show you. How many of you, if you were only 50% successful at doing this, and half of the new members that you discipled, you won 20 to Christ in, in 10 years, and only 10 of the 20 went ahead and became reproducing, multiplying Christians? You had a 50% failure ratio, and you only reached a half a million. Well, let's say that you were really bad off. That you were only 10% successful and only 100,000 came to know the Lord in the next 20 years. Would you still mess with it? Would you still do it? <laughs> you bet you would. This is the message. It's the hydrogen bomb of Christianity. It is the power of the New Testament to carry out the Great Commission and finish the job. Jesus said, my food, my satisfaction is to do the will of my Father and finish the work. And now He sent us out to do a job. The Great Commission. And He said, if you've got a lot of harvest, Luke 10 too, but you got a shortage of workers. We got some members, but we need workers. If you got a shortage of them, what do we do about it? He just said, pray and ask the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers to work in the harvest. What do you need to go home to your church doing then? I'd be praying for workers. God give me a bunch of them. 
That's New Testament. And that's good for all of us. Have you all ever had anything that you're really willing to die for? Passionate enough about it that you're really willing to give your life for it? Well, I've got to tell you, Jesus Christ is looking for some men and women in every state in the Union and every nation in the world who are willing to lay their lives on the line for the Great Commission and finish the job to be counted on the team that winds it up. I don't know when, but I do know how. It'll happen through two verses of Scripture. Acts 1-8 will be completed. The witness will go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, just like He said. And the gospel will be preached in all the world, just like He said. Amen? And the way we're going to get there is not just preaching, not just teaching, but training. Heavenly Father, this is a point in our time together today that we're, we're feeling the need for quiet. We've got some heart searching to do, some soul searching. It would be easy it would be relaxing and in some senses even enjoyable to stay in our comfort zone and keep doing the same old thing we're used to doing the same way we've always done it. But there's a hole, Father, in our church. And people are falling by the wayside. The cults are picking them up. They're going back into the world into complacency and carnality. Mediocrity. We're asking you today, up and down these aisles and those who are with us by tape, that we might meet with you and do eternal business with you here today. That the standard of excellence would be raised way above where it is today. That we by norm and expectation would not be out of line in calling upon you for great and mighty things that we do not currently see. That we would see teenagers begin to reach their high schools for Christ. That we would see businessmen impact their industry, their colleagues, their friends. That we would see housewives and homemakers and people that are educators impact the people around them so profoundly that hundreds and thousands, Lord, and even millions find their way into the kingdom of God through the witness of your people. We ask that you would raise up the standard of prayer so that every morning we would feel like we'd missed breakfast if we hadn't spent time in the Word of God. That we might join David and say, I esteem your word more than my necessary food. I delight in your statutes more than I delight in great riches. And Father, that we might fall in love with you in a way that we have not known before. We love you already, but we want to love you more. And you said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And we'd like to experience some holiness in our life. We'd like to experience some passion for you. We'd like to be falling in love with spending our time with other people who need us instead of selfishly spending time on ourselves. Could you please do a miracle 
in our lives and in our churches where fire would catch and spread and there would be a quiet, mighty revival that would sweep through the land starting in our churches represented here today. Lord Jesus, we're not coming to you asking for something timidly. We're coming with boldness. We're coming with confidence. Because John has told us in 1 John 5, 14 and 15 that if we ask something that pleases you and is according to your will, then you hear us. And what we're saying to you today is count us in. We want to be part of the solution in the future. Let our lives and our churches be a light, a beacon of spiritual and evangelistic multiplication. If you've prayed that prayer and our eyes are closed so we're not looking at each other, and you've prayed it on a personal level and you've added your own petitions to it, because you know your own condition and your own heart, I don't, but God knows it and you know it. And you're rock solid serious about wanting to change the way things are in your life and your church for the better. And you'd like to get involved in this discipling process spiritually. I'd like for you to tell the Lord about it in your heart right now. And after you've done so, slip your hand up and just take it down. Yes, 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 yes. Lord, you've seen our hearts. That's where you live. You've seen our hands. You know what that means. Now we pray that this afternoon, as we go into the how-to of trying to implement these beautiful principles, that you'll sharpen our minds and let it be as if we'd only been together for an hour, that time would pass so quickly. But when we leave, we would leave confident that we can go back and make the difference. And as a family, we pray that together saying, Amen. Amen. Let me start by giving a little illustration from a true story. It was my privilege several years ago to be the guest of a missionary organization uh, that wanted me to come down to Mexico City because that's a big challenge. That's the largest city in the world. And they wanted to show God's people that that city could be evangelized and multiplication has the power to do it. There is no other way to reach a city that size, I want to tell you. It'll have to be through friendships and relationships. Now, we were down there, and I received a call from a church here in the United States, and the pastor's a dear friend, and he said, Bill, when you get back, would you come meet with our staff? And I said, what's happening? He said, we've got a problem. He said, we're the 15th largest church in the world, and we are in trouble. Now, some of you say, well, I'd just love to be the 15th largest church in the world, whatever problems he is having. But really, it was very frustrating to him because they had lost 1,000 members that year. I said, how many new members have you taken in? He said, 1,200. And he said, that's no way to do God's work. Would you all agree? Amen. So what he did was do an exit poll to find out what in the world people were saying that had left, that had moved down the street. If they'd gone to other cities, he didn't bother to have them, you know, written. 
But I mean, if somebody leaves your church and they end up going to a church that's 10 blocks away, you do need to know why. So, I mean, and they might be needed there. God may have let, actually legitimately led them there, but he wanted to know. So they did this exit poll, and uh, uh, roughly 300 people responded to the poll. He was concerned because he felt his preaching might be the problem. A minister of music, who's also a good friend, was afraid that the music might not be contemporary enough to suit many of the people uh, in, in their church. The minister of youth was confident that the adults were leaving because the young people were not satisfied with the ministry they were receiving. And the minister of education confided in me that he thought really deep down probably the problem was the Sunday school, not the preaching or the teaching. Now, was the devil having fun or not? Everybody in the church was saying, Lord, is it me? So they did the survey, and you'll be thrilled to hear the answer. They loved the preaching. 93% of the 300 people said, we left, but it wasn't because of doctrine, nor the wonderful messages from the pulpit were very practical, very inspiring. We thought that the education ministry of the Sunday school was dynamic. They liked the youth ministry, thought the ministry of music was outstanding, and even commented favorably about the architecture. So there just didn't seem to be any good reason for these people to be leaving. 93% of the 300 that responded said we left simply because we could never establish a meaningful friendship in the church. Now you say, well, that could only happen in a huge megachurch. Wrong. People form friendships and you have to break into the group of friends unless you're intentional about friendship. And so consequently, whether it was in the first century or the 21st century, the problem's the same, we're humans. It's a human factor. It's a human thing. And so you'll become secure in the relationships that you form within your church. That's your security blanket. And you're a little bit reticent to reach out and really work at bringing somebody else that's new in the church into that circle of friends unless you're quite mature, quite unselfish, and you're really looking for the opportunity to be a blessing to somebody else. How many of y'all would pretty well agree with what I'm saying? Amen. All right, we've all experienced it. I was teaching in a city not too long ago, and one of the missionaries that had come back from the foreign field raised his hand and said, Billy, I'm glad you're saying this because we've moved back to this country after years on the foreign field join a church, and we feel totally friendless. And we've been a member of the church for six months. Now, this is bad. I visited a Mennonite service in another state some years ago. Uh, Carol Ann and I were traveling up east, and I said, honey, let's go to a Mennonite service and just see what happens when we walk in, unannounced, sit down, we're visitors, and they have not a clue uh, that we're already believers or uh, whatever. And so we did. I'll tell you what happened. At the end of the service, the pastor got up, the one who was leading the service that day, I'll put it that way, and said, do we have any visitors among us this morning? Well, they knew we were visitors. They could look at us. You know, they knew that. And they said, we have a family that's our tradition every week. We have a family that has prepared a welcome lunch at their home 
for 18 or 20 people we prepare every Sunday for visitors. And how we would love for you to come to our home and eat lunch with us. And it wasn't the pastor's home. It was one of the members that did this. Every week a different member would take the responsibility. So we went to the home of the members and had lunch with them. Had a wonderful time. Excellent food. Excellent fellowship. And there were several other visitors who joined us there. How do y'all like that? They were intentional about friendship. They reached out. I went to an independent Baptist church in another state. Had some Methodist friends with me. We were teamed up doing some ministry in that state together. And we went to that church unannounced, just dropped in, didn't know where we were going, just boom, that's the church we saw, that's the church we went to Sunday morning. And we thought, let's see what happens. Did the same thing. They had us for lunch. Somebody had it prepared. They were planning ahead of time for visitors. And we were treated like kings. And I want to tell you, when, when you feel that way when you visit a worship service, even if you don't go, the fact that they'd prepared and they were ready for you to go and invited you to go is going to leave a very positive memory. Would you all not agree with that? Now, if we can do that, I was in a Korean church, totally different culture, San Francisco, teaching on the same subject we're dealing with today. So I said, and it was a huge church. And I said, what, what do you all do when people accept Christ here on Sunday morning and they receive the Lord? He said, if they're visitors or if they're saved, either way, they're our guests for lunch. And we have it prepared, catered, and brought in. And I said, could I go with you and join you for that today? They said, sure. So I went and sat in and listened to everything that happened. Beautiful. Excellent food. Well organized. The pastor presented an explanation of who they were as Christians, who they were as a church, what their mission statement was, how much it meant to them that these people had come to visit, and would you not please come and be with us regularly? And there were about 14 visitors that had lunch with them there that day at the church. Now these are little things I'm trying to say to you about a broad need. I don't care if you're a new believer or a veteran missionary coming back from the foreign field to retire. You are looking for relationships and friendships in the church which you join. Fair enough? So if they come back, skip a call to joy and go straight into what? A call to growth, which is mature. But give them the benefit of the friendship. Okay? The curriculum is just a track for the friendship to run on, to kind of keep it on course. But we've tried it every way you can think of. We've tried it without material, with material. Uh, heavy, heavy-duty material, light, easy material. We've done it. We've rewritten this material eight different times. After field testing, field testing, field testing, and I can tell you that it's pretty well perfected now. We don't have one problem in 100 or 200 people. Now, the fellow that I told you about from Oklahoma earlier that led 40 to the Lord, <laughs> he's, I just love him. He said, you know, he said, I'm ready to disciple my first person. Now, this was two weeks ago when we met together. He said, I'm ready to disciple my first person. I said, well, you got 42 to pick from. You shouldn't have much trouble uh, picking somebody to work with. He said, do you think, though, that it will embarrass them that I can't read very well and that I have to struggle through it? I said, uh-uh. 
Steve, they'll see your heart. And that's what people are looking for. That's what God looks at, and that's what people ultimately look at, is our hearts. And if your heart is filled with love, it'll cover a multitude of anything else. With me? Okay. Now, when I came here, I flew here on a plane as usual. Uh, Southwest is what seems to go from Texas to Arkansas pretty frequently. And on that flight, I was not flapping my arms trying to get us here. You know, I look out the window sometimes in amazement and wonder how it works. Frankly, every time I get on a plane, it's by faith because I don't comprehend it. I know how it's supposed to work, but it still doesn't make sense that it can hold that weight up in the air. And I can't see anything coming out of the engine. Do you all ever feel that way? Now, we as Christians have to feel like there is a miracle every time that we're used by God. The words begin to come out of our mouth and we hardly know that we're the ones saying it. It's like it rolls off. And Jesus said, take no thought for what you shall say. For in the hour that you need it, it shall be given unto you. It's not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit through you. Now, once we begin to teach new Christians that we don't have to strive and strain, fear is gone. And I'll tell you something else. I have noticed that fear does not come with being born again. Fear is a learned behavior pattern. New Christians are not scared to witness. They come in just bubbling over. <laughs> a funny one happened. I led an old boy to Christ years ago in uh, India who came to my door and knocked and said he'd walked two days' journey because he heard that there were some Christians coming there. And I was there with the Billy Graham Crusade and Ak Barhak was preaching it. And my job was youth ministry at that time. So I was in my room and he came. He was dressed in white from head to toe in a robe and had his, uh, his literature, which was Hindu. And he came and knocked on my door and he said, I want to know about Jesus Christ. I said, well, you've come to the right place. Come on and sit down. He said, I've walked two days journey because in my heart I've begun to sense that he may actually be God who he claimed to be. He knew that much. And he said, if he is, I want to know him. And if he isn't, I don't want anything to do with it. And he said, I've come to try to meet with a Christian to determine if he is or isn't who he claimed to be. And he said, and I don't know your Bible. Can you show me from your book what he said? Now, I like that. Amen. So I took my book and I showed him what he said. And tears came to his eyes about 30 minutes later, and he said, this is the most wonderful thing I've ever seen. He said, I want to give my heart, my life, everything I have to him. And he did. And I said, I don't want you to tell your family, your employer, anybody what you've done for 72 hours. Give me three days. Come back every night after the crusade services. Meet me here and let me teach you more of the Bible because you're going to get fired and you're going to get kicked out of your home and it's going to be lonely and rough. And I said, I want you to be prepared to explain to them exactly what you're doing and why. He said, okay. The next afternoon, he shows back up in, my, in, the, in the hallway there at the Grand Hotel. Don't get any mental pictures. I beg you. <laughs> and so he's standing there in the hallway and blushing timid looking, kind of half scared. And I was, I thought, what in the world's going on? So I walked up to him and he said, will you forgive me? He said, I've made a horrible mistake. 
well, I just knew there was some, you know, terrible sin or crime or something that had happened, and now he was so apologetic to God. And he said, I tried with all my heart to wait three days. But he said, I got worried about my best friend. He said, I think a lot of him. And he said, you know, if he had a car wreck or anything happened, he'd go to hell. And he said, I just couldn't do that to him. I just couldn't wait three days to tell him about Jesus. And he said, I knew you'd be upset with me. And I knew it wasn't right. But something inside of me was making me want to do it. And he said, he's hiding around the corner. And I just wish you'd tell him what you told me yesterday. So I hugged him. And I said, you're forgiven. <laughs> and the other friend gave his heart to the Lord as well. Amen. Now, real Christianity cannot be contained. Right. When God has really done a work in your life and mine, I'm going to tell you something. You can even look at a person and they look different. Their eyes are different. Their vocabulary changes. What they want to do changes. There was an old boy in Oklahoma City who was saved in a Billy Graham crusade back in the 50s, and Gene Ward told me the story. He was a real wealthy guy. He owned a bunch of oil equipment and rigs and wells and stuff, and he was a real humble guy. He had an oil rig in his front yard. I mean, that, that's the kind of guy he was, another silent American. So he puts a sign up the next day after he's saved in his front yard. It said, this business under new management. <laughs> and everybody said, who'd you sell out to? And he said, I gave my life to Jesus Christ in the Billy Graham crusade. The Lord is chairman of the board from today forward. Now, y'all, that's kind of how that brother was in India. The Lord was chairman of the board. What needs to happen, I think, is we need to be able to say to our people who sign up to join us in this, morning by morning we need to hear from the chairman what we're supposed to be doing today. We need to be hearing from the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings how we're to live, act, and be His ambassador today. It's a new level of awareness. In the old days, we called it the Lordship of Christ. If you've read some of the great devotional writers of yesteryear, you'll know what we're talking about. Andrew Murray, Oswald Chambers, many others. There's a beautiful story that Grady once told me about Billy. One day... President Eisenhower called Dr. Graham when Dr. Graham was having his quiet time. And instead of taking the call, he left word with the president that he would call him right back. The president didn't know why, but Billy didn't take the call at that moment. You have to understand that Eisenhower, having been a five-star general <laughs> for many years, was not used to waiting on things, and certainly not as the president. So when Billy called him, just very soon thereafter, the president reportedly said, words to this effect, Billy, I'm not used to having to wait on people to return my calls. And he was a little miffed. And Billy said words to the effect of, President Eisenhower, I have a great respect for you, and I wouldn't have kept you waiting under any normal circumstances. But I was having some very quality time with Jesus Christ, my Lord. And I knew that if you wanted to talk to me, it might be of great importance. And I wanted to be sure to have any preparation I needed to help you or respond to you. And it shut the president up totally. I mean, it's just like, ugh, it's the first time I've been outranked and I can remember, you know, when. Now, I think we need to have this kind of attitude that the telephone is not first in our life. Christ is. 
the immediacy and the urgency and all the brush fires of your ministry are secondary to the holiness and the wonder of the Creator of the universe. And when you and I have the privilege of being in the presence of the Lord and Lords and the King of Kings in the morning, we need to put it first. Grady told me another story. He said when Billy was quite young, they were at a retreat. And I don't believe Billy had even been called to preach yet. But they were at a retreat up in the Carolinas, and there was a, a godly old gentleman. The way Grady described him, I can just see gray hair and, you know, uh, kind of saintly and maybe in his 70s or 80s. And Billy, they called him Billy Frank back then, went through and spoke to him and said, Hello, Reverend so-and-so. Didn't get a response back. He went through the line, got his food or whatever, kind of puzzled, and he thought, well, he told Grady, he said, I think he must be losing his hearing. The gentleman came to him a little later and said, Billy Frank, thank you for greeting me a while ago, but I was spending a time in prayer, and I didn't want to break off my conversation with God. Now, what is it you have on your mind, young man? Click. The example of the old godly pastor was never forgotten by Billy Graham. Are you following what's happening here? And years later, when the president calls, where is his priority? Where the man who was a quiet mentor, he didn't know he was teaching him, but he was teaching him for a moment 40, 50 years down the line. That would be very important. And do you know the president respected Billy and they were close friends all through the years? And I think because of things just like that. Your people are watching you. I don't care if you're a Sunday school teacher. Your people are watching you. The people in your class. If you're a deacon, the people who put you in that role humanly, God put you there, but they affirmed you. They're watching you. And everything you and I do is a sermon, either for or against the integrity of the message we bear. We're either a stumbling block or we're a blessing. And if you cheat in little ways, or you cheat in big ways on your income tax, people, believe me, God knows, but other people will find out and they know it too. They're watching. If your eyes are impure and you're looking at stuff that a Christian shouldn't be watching, you may think you're getting away with it, but God knows. And I'll tell you something, other people will know too. Now, one of you came up to me at the break. In fact, it was Billy who's here. And because I've been talking about a plumber so much in the illustration, and Billy is a plumber, and we met a while ago before I used that illustration, he came up and teased me about it. But Billy made a big point to me. He said, Billy, if all these people come and are blessed and they leave with a lot of heart passion to go back and do something new and different that's old and ancient, and to bring it back into the life of the church, but there are issues in their life that need to be repented of, then what you've done is given them tools, but you haven't given them the cleansing that needs to go with it in order for those tools to be effectively used. Well said, Billy. I appreciate it. Don't you all agree? Amen. And the Holy Spirit will convict us. We're mature enough that each one of us can be listening. I hope if there's something that's keeping you from doing this today, that you'll get right about it. Because I have known people that have said, I know this is what I need to do, but in my heart of hearts, I can't be an example to a new Christian because I know I've got this 
problem as big as Dallas in my life. I've got to deal with it. Don't put it off. Let's do deal with it. So that somebody would be safe walking in your footsteps. Okay? We're never going to be perfect, believe me. But there's no reason not to face a known sin and get it out of our life and repent of it. My first church had seven members. And I had lunch today with several, but one of the brothers that I had lunch with had seven members and he got a unanimous call. I had the same experience in Texas myself at my first church. I had two deacons, one who came and one who didn't. Uh, I don't know what Gene's experience was along that line. Probably similar. But we started with what we had. And I discipled a turkey farmer. And uh, the church grew. In 12 months, we went from 7 to 30. Because the few that we had were teachable. They had warm spirits. And they were willing to start praying and to start witnessing. And they began to multiply. Our little town had 359 people. Aquila, Texas. It still is about that size. <laughs> it's, it hadn't changed much in 35 years. But I can say this. I went back about four or five years ago to do a revival meeting and to be with wonderful people in that church. Took my wife. She'd never met them. And uh, to make a long story very short, I, I had tears in my eyes when I found out they have 129 members now in a town with 356 people. And I said, how on earth did you do it? And the ladies now who had children who were teenagers when I taught them, I wasn't much older than that myself because I'm only 56 now, only. And uh, I said, how did you do it? And they looked at me like, why would you ask that? They said, we multiplied. That's what you told us to do. Don't you love it when people just do what you're supposed to do? That's what they did. You say, well, could it work for us? Well, it worked for them. I don't see why it wouldn't work for you. It's a biblical principle. Work for anybody. We trained a student. I say we, a good friend of mine. I just love him to death. He's, he's great. He's a Presbyterian. Teaches discipleship up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And we've written some books together. And he called me one day and he said, Bill... He said, I want you to pray for a certain country and a certain group of people in Africa. I said, I'll do that. What's happening? He said, I trained a student and took him through this Operation Multiplication. And he said, um, he went back and applied the principles because he, he didn't have the literature and materials in that language, but he understood it thoroughly. And they had Bibles. And he said he won a few people to Christ, started a church, it grew to 200. Then they started a mission, taught them how to multiply, got them started doing it, watched them for a while, then started another church, planted it, put a few people out there, and they started winning people to the Lord and working one-on-one -on -one with them, and it multiplied. And he said he's been there for about, oh, about five, six years now. And I said, well, what's happening? He said, I just flew over there as their guest to meet with their people. And he said, Bill, there's over 10,000 of them that I met with that have come out of that one student's ministry that I taught in seminary. I said, you're kidding. He said, no. I said, 
we must be very, very careful not to talk about this. We'll not mention the name of the country nor the tribe. And we've been careful not to do it. There are over 20,000 now. You know why we're not telling? Because we don't want any Americans to find out about it. We don't want anybody to go over there and write books about it or try to can it and bring it home and sell it. Just leave them alone. Now, let me tell you something. Every culture is a little different. I was with Rick Warren. Rick was my intern for three years. And Rick had a dream, a burning vision in his heart for California. Even though Rick was in Texas studying at Southwestern, and that's when he was an intern with us, and he, he and Kay are two of my dearest friends, and I absolutely thank God for their lives and what they've done, and the anointing of God upon them. But Rick had a vision before I ever met him. All I had the joy of doing was refining and help direct that vision a bit and encourage him with the vision God had already given him. And that's what discipling really is, basically. It's helping people with what God's already got in store and plans for them. We don't try to make them like us. We want to make them more like Christ. So... When Rick left, he was kind enough to invite me to come out and preach at his church. I guess the first person who ever preached, other than Rick, at Saddleback. And Rick, the rascal, had me come preach on tithing. And I said, you coward, why in the world, of all the things, would you have me come preach on tithing? Which I enjoyed doing. But in any event, Rick has found out the mindset of his part of the country. And he's fashioned his ministry to fit the West Coast. Are you following what I'm saying? You've got to be in tune with your people and the needs of those whom God has called you to serve. Take the principles and apply them and you'll be blessed. Each denomination has its own personality or there'll just be one denomination because we're really not all that different on doctrine, most of us, truly. When you get right down to it, we're evangelical, and you've just got some I's and T's that may be needed to dot a little differently. But we have the same Lord. Amen. I hope you all believe that. Amen. When we get to heaven, we're all going to be there if we're born again. Yes, all right, now, where I'm coming from on this is, and Rick would say the same thing to you, buy into principles. We're not here to talk to you about methodology. I'm not. I'm here to talk to you about theology. The program of the books and materials that we're recommending to you, that'll change. That'll come and go over the years. But the principles behind them never will change. So don't get excited and go home talking about a program. Operation multiplication is not the deal. The deal is spiritual multiplication. Amen. The biblical theological undergirding of what we're talking about. At the moment, there is no other process for you to say, I'm going to do this, this, or this. When Nelson Word determined that there was a great, huge, missing gap, a need within Christendom, and they came to me years ago, they said, Billy, would you help us with this? My good friend uh, came to me, and I said, let's spend a day together in prayer. Harry Clayton, their senior vice president. And I said, let's pray for a day. He came to my village, Salado. We prayed. 
He said, Billy, let's look and see how many small group Bible studies materials there are in the United States that can be used by churches. We did some research, found out over 350 sets existed. And good stuff. Most of it. He said, now how much is there for one-on-one for mentoring? And the only thing in existence was CBMC, Christian Businessmen's Committee, had a good set of material called the Timothy Program. But it wasn't designed for local churches. It was designed for businessmen working with businessmen in the business community. And it didn't fit the church. And we said, all right, we'll get a group of authors. We'll start from scratch and develop something that will meet this need for all denominations. And we will be the first to do it, which made it very expensive and very painful because we had to redo it eight times because there was nothing else like it in the world. And it cost a million two hundred thousand dollars in research and development to do the books that you have in your hands. We found out Robert Coleman would participate, Leroy Imes would participate, Billy Beecham would participate. We, we went down through the line and we got guys who live it. The writers in here live what they're writing or they aren't in there. Number two, after we did all this research, development, raised funds, and a lot of laymen donated to help us do it, Nelson Word said, you know what? We don't want to make a dime off this. We want to do this for the kingdom of God, for the glory of God, to evangelize the world. And they donated back all of the copyrights and said this will be royalty-free, profit-free for the good of the world. Amen. There's an 800 number for you to call any time to California to... Randy Craig, whose name is on the front of the pastor's book. Randy is a consultant all day. He's a businessman who sold his business seven years ago and said, Billy, you can't afford me, but God has told me to do this. I'm going to come to work and be a consultant for pastors, and I'm selling my business so that I can do it. And he's done that, and he is loved by pastors all over America. Call him. Talk to him. Pray with him. He'll tell you anything you want to know about how to do this. If you have a little problem, call him. He'll be there for you. All right, let's take a look at how this works. You've got some folks that you're going to need to go back and share with. Your lay leaders, your staff, photocopy pages one through nine in your pastor's notebook. And the pastor's notebook, of course, is just this little loose leaf book. Tabs, everything there, it's yours, and you're welcome to make copies of it, or you can order more copies of it. You can Xerox it if you please. Have at it. Use it to get the job done. Take pages one through nine, hand them out to the leaders in your church. I would suggest you do it over food. <laughs> They'll show up that way. They'll stay with you that way. It just works better. Explain the vision. Share with them everything that you want to, and this will kind of guide you in how to do that. All right, then read and discuss each spiritual principle together. Challenge those who are with you to join the effort by prayerfully signing the covenant. Okay? Once they sign the covenant, they're yours. They're with you. They're your team. Step three. Next, you've got to select ministry leadership. Prayerfully enlist one coordinator for each five adult and youth Bible study classes. Now let me pause there to explain. One of the churches that was with us yesterday 
must be a very, very large church. And I gather that they have about 200 Bible study groups. Now, for them to do this, what they're going to have to do is have a lot of coordinators because they're going to have to have about 40 of them, one for each five Bible study groups. That's no problem. But what they'll have to do is have somebody above those coordinators so that nobody has too much work and responsibility. We like the one to five ratio. Now, in Aquila, with seven people, or when we grew to even 30, we only had three Sunday school classes. We had one for youth, one for ladies, one for men. That was it. What would I need? One good coordinator. If it's from one to five, you need one coordinator for Sunday school classes or growth groups. Now let me pause to say, if you're using a cell group model, that doesn't change this even a bit, not a whit. You don't have to meet on Sunday. You can be meeting during the week if you're using a cell group approach or if you're using a traditional approach of a Sunday school or any variation thereof. Just think about one to five and you're right on target. Recruit one or more dedicated persons who have a heart for evangelism, genuinely care about people, and will commit the necessary time to carry out this new ministry. That's what a sort of a job description for the coordinator would look like. Invite him or her to a vision casting meeting and explain pages 1 through 9 along with the coordinator's ministry description. That's found on pages 13 through 30. Now, everything that you need basically is already here. You just make photocopies of it, hand it out, and what I like to do is have everybody read a paragraph in a circle. So everybody's reading, and then you stop as the leader and comment on what they're reading as you go around. It's just that simple. Okay? Present the spiritual need and evangelistic potential, then prayerfully enlist his or her participation. Now, First, you get a coordinator for each of your uh, five Sunday school classes or groups. And next, you're going to then get team leaders and disciples. Now, here's how that works. Let's say we have 12, so you've got two coordinators, possibly three, whatever you're comfortable with. You're going to need a team leader for each of those 12 classes. You'll need one person in each group who is your team leader. Now, what is the team leader's role? When someone joins the church, they're going to be encouraged already in your system to join a Bible study group. So when that person joins that Bible study group, the trained individuals in that group, female or male, are going to specially welcome that person, and the team leader is going to say, Frida, would you work with Mary? Could you do that? Are you willing to take, uh, do you have time? Or are you free right now? And uh, would you pray about it? Yes, I would be willing to do that. Okay. Then I would like to give you the information about Mary. Here's all the information when she joined the church. And you'll see pastors that in quadruplicate, in the back of your book, we have a sample decision form that's in quadruplicate that has all of the demographic, all the information that's needed to help the discipler in the class know how to contact, 
relate to and understand some of the needs even of this new person that, that's going to be their friend. It's all thought through for you, so it works real smoothly. All right? How many of you would be excited if very easily, smoothly, every new member could be assigned someone when they first day they join their Sunday school class or growth group? That's what we're talking about. And the team leader facilitates that. You've got to have someone for the responsibility of making sure that happens. Secondly, the team leader contacts that uh, discipler every week and says, Frida, how is your work going with Mary? What prayer support do you need? Are you running into any problems that we need to know about? So there is uh, accountability and encouragement every week by telephone. We'd like everybody up and down the line to be doing what we're talking about and modeling it for the rest of us. And that goes from the pastor on down, y'all. Pastors, you say, I'm too busy. Mm -mm. Mm -mm -mm. Remember Moses. Remember Elijah. Remember Paul. You see, we cannot fail to eat. Y'all, you eat 21 times a week. We've discussed this already. All I'm doing is saying, Pastor, don't eat alone. You have this one person that you're discipling who comes and eats with you once a week. You can do it on the way to the hospital, or you can do it on the way to pastor's meeting, or you can do it helping the layman go to a business meeting. Whatever you want to do, but get together and disciple somebody. Fair enough? Yes, sir. How many can one disciple Okay, that's an excellent question. It depends upon the practicality of life, frankly. I'll give you an example. Two quickies. One pastor in West Texas, <laughs> oh, he called me one day and he said, Billy, I want to move to another church. He said, I beg you to please recommend me to another church. He said, my people are not spiritual. <laughs> I said, how many members do you have? He said, 500. I said, you've got to have a few good ones. You know, I mean, you know, there's got to be a remnant. I said, you're just having a bad day. And he said, no, I've had a bad year. And I said, well, look, would you be willing, if I promise you I'll recommend you to another church, will you promise me that you'll give me six weeks of doing exactly what I tell you to do before I recommend you to another church? He said, your own. I'll do that. I said, okay. I want you to pray for one godly man out of 500 members who would be willing to meet with you in the morning for breakfast for six weeks in a row and for you to disciple him, and here's what I'm going to tell you to do. And I just told him to take him through a call to joy, basically. Just the simple stuff we've been talking about. He called me back about six weeks later, and he shouted. I was at the Holiday Inn. I'll never forget it. He said, Yahoo! Kind of scared me. I said, who is this? And he told me his name, and I, I said, oh, I know who it is. All right. I said, well, what's happening? He said, I prayed for one godly man who I could meet with him again to disciple. And he said, the Lord gave me two. I said, really? From your church? He said, no. He said, one came from First Methodist, and one came from our church. He was Baptist. I said, look, the Methodist pastor is a dear friend of mine. Don't get me in hot water with him by taking one of his laymen and saying I said to do it. He said, no, I went over it. He said, if I could do anything with him, I could have him. <laughs> so 
I said, well, do you want me to recommend you to another church or not? And he said, you couldn't get me out of this town with a crowbar. He said, I wouldn't leave these two guys for anything. He said, they already led somebody to Christ. He said, in six weeks, I've seen more growth in these two guys than I've seen in the whole five years I've been here. And he said, those guys love God. He said, I'm talking about they're excited. I said, well, how about the rest of the church? He said, ah, oh, it's just the same as always. <laughs> now, you see, the deal I'm trying to say to y'all is we get fulfillment out of close interpersonal relationships in ministry that does not come from standing in front of a crowd teaching the Bible in Sunday school or in worship. Do y'all agree with that? Now, that pastor got so excited, he met with one different guy every day in the week. He ended up with five men he was working with. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, he was on. And he loved it. Now, I don't know how his wife felt about it, but he loved it. All right? He didn't meet with them together. It loses it there. Let me explain why. And I don't want to pick on sanguines. If y'all are sanguine, just forgive me for a moment. But if you take three people and you start going through discipleship material with them and you begin to try to train them, one of them will be melancholy. That person will sit there and think deeply and wonder and kind of analyze what you're going over. But the sanguine will just go, da, 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 da. they're just having more fun. They just love it. They're just eating it up, talking up a storm, and the other people can't get in a word edgeways. What happens is somebody gets neglected. If you have three people you're working with, or sometimes even two, somebody gets neglected. Secondly, they will not tell you their heartfelt problems with somebody else listening. That's right. And this is why we have found over the years that it just works tons better to work with one individual at a time. Now, my other quick story, and the pastor that's pastor of this church told me, he said, never hold a seminar without telling my story. He went back from this praying for some workers, which is what we all need to do. And he said, I need some disciples, Lord, for the church to do this in every group. And every time he'd pray, this lady in a wheelchair who was in her 70s came to his mind. He could not figure out why. And he said, Lord, she's never been in uh, any of our EE ministry. She's never taught a Sunday school class. She's not been active in our choir ministry or the youth ministry. But she's been attending for 30 years, very faithfully. Her husband had recently died. She was living on a fixed income in a small house. You can kind of picture it, frame house. And she was in a wheelchair. He called her. And he said, I, I would like to know, are you lonely? She said, I am so lonely, I'm dying. She said, I'm hurting. I miss my husband. Something awful. I'm in this home all by myself. The nest has been empty for 30 years. Yeah, pastor, I'm dying of loneliness. Louise, he said, if I were to send a girl over to your house who's about 28 or 30 that's joined our church, she's a new Christian, would you be her friend and teach her how to pray? Could you do some simple Bible studies with her and maybe talk to her about sharing her faith with her friends? She said, well, you know, Pastor, I've never taught a class or done anything like this, but she said, a friend I can be. She said, I don't see why anybody couldn't do that. She said, could you bring me the material and let me look at it? So he brought her call to joy, let her look at it, call to growth. She read it through and called him back about a week later. And she said, anybody could do this. This is simple. She said, yeah, I'll do it. He said, okay. 
about six weeks, she met with a girl, began to train her and disciple her, and she didn't have any money, so what she did was she said, Pastor, would peanut butter sandwiches with potato chips and iced tea be okay for lunch? So this gal came over. She called him about six weeks later, and she said, why have I had to live 76 years to find my ministry? She said, for once you have found something that anybody can do. And she said, I'm an anybody. Words to that effect. And she said, Pastor, I live from Monday to Monday. Do you have any girls that need help on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday? And he gave her four more. And those girls' lives were changed. She was their grandmother, spiritually. And she just loved it. And is probably still doing it just like that today. So if you're busy and you're not retired, one is perfect. <laughs> but if you're lonely and you're home alone and you've got nothing but the cat and the television, you could use five. At what age could someone We recommend about 15. Now you may have an unusually precocious young person who is more mature quicker than the average that would make it possible to do it younger. But on the whole, we find that that junior high school age do better in groups and do not respond well to this. And the younger, frankly, in our day, there's too much fear of sin and a one-to-one -one relationship of somebody older with a child. So we recommend groups. That's a tragic thing that's come upon us. But it is true. People are scared to death of that, and they have a reason to be. They have a right to be. So high school up is what we recommend on the average. Yeah. What about couples? Okay. Here's your thing on couples. You could meet together, but you can't do the discipling process together. Like if you wanted to get together at the home in two couples, no problem. But let me tell you why. Ladies, you're going to identify with this. Men, historically, do not understand women. <laughs> Ladies have problems and needs that we guys just don't really quite understand. I mean, we want to, we try to, we empathize, but 100% we don't. And we find that gals enjoy talking to each other, praying with each other, opening up and encouraging each other in a totally different way than we fellas do. And I'll just tell you another thing. Uh, if I were the older Christian and we had a, a young new Christian couple that joined the church and they come with baggage now, let's be real. And the guy's having a problem with pornography or maybe even an actual temptation towards some person. He is not going to be honest and gut level with me about it in front of his wife. But if he'll open up to me, I can help him if I can man-to-man -man talk with him and show him how to deal with it biblically and how to get some help from the Holy Spirit to overcome the problem. And girls, or gals, <laughs> ladies, it used to be that this was a male problem only. I got news for you. That's not true anymore. Right. We're finding more marriages are falling apart because of women leaving men in America now than men leaving ladies. It's all changed. Women are bailing out of their marriage quicker than men today. Men are more faithful at this point. And all your psychiatrists and psychologists will tell you that. What if some of these people go back to their church and the deacons throw a wet blanket upon the idea Okay. How many of y'all are familiar with wet blankets? <laughs> That's a good question. 
all right, when you go back to your church, you're really not going back asking to start a program as much as you are to initiate a ministry for people who feel called to do it. It's not like you're asking everybody in the church to do this. You're going back and seeking a few people in each Bible study group who will be a friend to new members and help them grow spiritually. We almost never have a wet blanket thrown on it because you're not going back and doing something that anybody can argue with. If you go back and say, are you for or against friendship? Let's vote on it. Uh, you might want to do that, but I don't think you'll find it necessary. Yes. It seemed to me that you were picking up these uh, new disciples through Sunday school. What if they don't come to Sunday school? We're having a problem trying to get new ones to filter into Sunday school. All right. The question is, what if people don't join Sunday school or growth group when they join your church? Right? Okay. How many of you are involved in an outreach process that's structured like EE or faith or got life or some of these things? All right. A lot of hands going up. If you are, you'll be aware of the fact that we have a problem with people making a threshold decision for Christ at their home, but being reticent to come to the church and join the Sunday school or just join the church, period. A lot of cases like this. We recommend that you have a core of people that are Operation Multiplication trained who will go on their turf, who will meet with them every week in their living room, have coffee at their house, and go through the studies with them, particularly if they're Roman Catholic or something like that where they don't feel comfortable coming to a Protestant worship service, and build bridges slowly where they learn that it's okay to come to a Protestant church or it's okay to come to somebody else's church. And if they're lost, they may have a husband that doesn't want them to go or a wife that doesn't want the husband to go, and they may have some legitimate problems that are keeping them from coming to be a member of the Sunday School of the Church. We need to get off our duff, get up and go to their home, and minister to them there until they're willing to do something different. Christmas will come, and we'll have a singing Christmas tree or a choir come, an event, and they'll come to that, and that breaks the ice. Easter will come. They'll come to the sunrise service with you. A ladies' retreat. You follow what I'm saying? Look for events during the year to draw the net and bring them back to worship and get them to be familiar with the church. And finally, if the Lord is in it, they'll join your church or they'll join your Sunday school. Sermon preparation. Pastors, this is important. Uh, while you're going back and selecting some disciplers, some team leaders, and your coordinators. That's the only thing you have to do. You need to also be preparing to preach on the principles of multiplication and mentorship or discipleship. And what you'd want to do probably is take along the little list of verses we've covered here today and maybe work your way down through either a series or two sermons or one sermon, whatever the Lord leads you to do, and as a resource for you, I'd like for you to take the Call to Joy Discipler Guide. That's the thicker of your two white books. By the way, both white books are white intentionally to call attention to the fact that these are the disciplers books. The other books are for the trainee, except for the journal. They both have journals. But these white books are for the discipler, and they say so. Discipler's Guide, Discipler's Guide. All right? 
take a look at the back, if you will, of the thicker one. It's page 119. And you're going to find some chapters that are not in the New Christian's material. These chapters are for the benefit of the disciplers only. I would recommend you as a pastor to read them. They're wonderful. Gary Cooney is an excellent author. He is a professor. He has written excellent material. He's discipled many men. And he has given us two chapters. One is an overview of follow-up. The other is how to form a relationship, a meaningful relationship. I've done a chapter on the New Testament approach to ministry. The classic work is by Robert Coleman, Association with Jesus. This is in over 70 languages. Um, and then, of course, you've got a tremendous chapter on the need of multiplying disciples by Leroy Imes, who is well-known all over the world as an author and is with the Navigators. And then, in addition, an excellent chapter by one of the men who has been one of my trainors through the years, Gene War a businessman in Oklahoma City, godly man, having some physical problems right now. I've been much in prayer for him. But Gene has written on man-to-man -man relationship as a Christian businessman. So I would recommend that you read these chapters for sermon preparation. You'll find some jewels for illustrations there for your preaching. The congregation needs to understand why people are beginning to meet one-on-one -on -one all over the place and why they're out there studying and doing all this. So give them periodically a little report from the pulpit to affirm the process. Just something like, isn't it great that whenever you accept Christ in our church, you'll immediately have a friend, and that they'll stick with you for a half a year until you're ready to win and train others, and they'll help you and be your real friend through all that you go through in your growth as a new believer. What does that do? when people are sitting out there as visitors in the church, that makes them feel like, oh boy, this is great. This church is serious, and if I end up making a decision, I'm going to have a friend. I'm going to have somebody to walk with me. Calvary Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, Ross Rhodes was the pastor there for many years. What a dear man of God he and his lovely wife are, Carol. He called me one day and he said, Bill, could you come look over our situation where losing about 53% of our new members in about 12 months. We don't know why. I went up, looked it over. They had excellent preaching. He is a masterful expositor of the Word. Beautiful organ, 11,000 pipes, second biggest of our century. A 100-acre complex at Charlotte, North Carolina for the beautiful church building. Spent over $30 million on the, the, the structure. So it's just, you know, it's just something to go see. You wouldn't believe it. But Sunday school, pretty weak. Their small group ministry was not very strong. It was a pulpit-driven church. One-on-one, non-existent. Didn't have any. And when people came and joined, they finally, they heard the organ. <laughs> they heard the tremendous preaching, but they were looking for love. And they weren't finding it. So about 53% of them were moving on. After we trained 190 of the members of the church to do one-on-one -on -one ministry using the exact same materials, they were in their early day stages at that time. They didn't have quite as nice a cover, but the same biblical content material. Those 190 people closed the back door of the church. It wasn't these books. It was the love of the people, and it will always be that.
He called me back. We looked at it. Two years later, they were down to 3% attrition. They'd gone from 53 to 3 in only 24 months. Now that ought to, that's worth the day if you didn't get anything else. Because your people giving care and love to your new members will shut the back door. However, the good news is it'll open the front door. Our first objective, however, is to close the hole in the bucket. Then our objective is evangelism and outreach and opening the front door. And the process is designed to do both. And it does it. Okay? Now, I'd like for you to take a look at this book and turn to page 8. And when you do that, take your blue book, A Call to Joy, and let's look at it at the same time. Look in both books. Open to page 8 in your little blue book, which is for the Timothy, and then page 8 also in your discipler book. At the same time, I want you to compare uh, these two pages, and you'll understand why when you get there. This actually took a little effort, and Randy Craig, who's not here today, but who you'll be calling and getting to know by phone, Randy's really the one who came up with this. He said, Bill, when a trainor and the trainee are doing this together, they need to be on the same page. And the only way we could figure out how to do it was to have a page 8 and a page 8 continued for the discipler because we wanted to give a lot more information on how to train somebody. So in your white book, you'll see page 8, and when you look to the right, it's going to say page 8 continued. And that's true on every page. Okay? Pretty simple. Now notice, the blanks to be filled in in the blue book correspond with the instruction in the white book. And why is that good? It's because the discipler is very, very intelligent. I mean, you got the stuff to answer the questions, all right? And you got a lot of it in front of you while you're meeting together. So the discipler loves it. Now, if I want to communicate something to you privately, kind of whisper in your ear and say, Psst, this would be a good time for you to give the illustration on the young man that ran away from home, which you've already read before coming to the meeting, takes about two minutes. Turn in your white book to page 199 and look at number seven. When a young man rebels and runs away from home, he remains the son of his parents no matter how far he runs or how deeply he strays from his parents' values. He retains his relationship as a son in spite of the temporary loss of close fellowship with his parents. In the same way, it is possible to be God's child, a Christian, and temporarily rebel and be out of fellowship with Him. If this occurs, He will lose the joy of His salvation, but not His relationship with God. Would you all agree with that one? Amen. How many of you have ever run from God? Many more hands going up. All right. I'll never forget one night when I was pastoring down in Aquila, we decided that we would move. This was a very ambitious experience. But the Methodist pastor and I decided that we would move our Sunday evening services together uh, to the uh, local bar. And that we would evangelize the people in our community because they had a much greater attendance on Sunday night than we did. And uh, it was called the Dusty Rose, I think. So uh, 
We left the women to pray and all the guys came with us and we took our Bibles and we had agreed with the owner of the bar that we would do this before we did it. We went to him and explained what we wanted to do. And we told him that we would do tag team preaching if he would let us do it and take turns. And, and a good friend of mine, Daniel Vestal, he was a good buddy back in college, and Dan would tag me and I'd preach and I'd tag Dan and he'd preach. And, and we had an incredible service in that bar. But one of the men got up, slammed the door, and left, and we had mentioned that the idea came from England because Spurgeon and his son used to take turns preaching like that. So this guy said, take it back to England, as he slammed the door. A little later, he comes back in, comes over and sits down by me with tears streaming down his cheeks. And he said, why did you have to bring the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ to this hellish place and lower it by bringing it here? And I said, because you were here, my friend, and God loves you. He said, I figured that. He said, do you know why I'm here? I said, I have no idea, but I'd like to know. He said, I'm running from God. He said, I'm hiding from him in this bar. And so help me, you had to come to this bar to find me. <laughs> he said, I was in Vietnam, and he said, God called me to preach the gospel. And I didn't want to preach, and I've been running ever since, and I've been drinking hard to try to drown out the call. And he said, I figured if I couldn't get away from him at the Dusty Rose, there's no place to go. He said, right now I surrender for the gospel ministry. And I'm quitting drinking as of this minute. I want to tell you, that was a great experience for a young pastor. And several people got saved and we moved our Wednesday night prayer meeting to the bar. And before long, the bar closed forever. It just shut down. Nobody would come anymore. It was exciting. And revival broke out, and that's why our church grew to 30. The bar went down, the church went up. Now, my point is, sometimes you're running from God. And that old boy was running from God. But when you run away from the Lord, you're not really going anyplace any more than Jonah did. God knows exactly where we are, what we're doing at all times, and we're not pulling the wool over his eyes. And he loves us in spite of it, but he wants us to shape up, come on back, and get about his work. Y'all buy into that? God is a God of love, but He's also got expectations for us. And unto whom much is given, much is what? Required. And we've been given a lot in America. And we've been given a lot as Christians all over the world. Now, tell that story any way you please. Make it your own. At this particular point on page 8, let's go back there. And... They're going to write down young man who runs away from home, where it says illustration. Now, if there's something I want you to say to them, but just come on out and tell them, that'll be in a box, all right, but it won't have gray on it. So that's how it works. With gray, it's secret. Between us, you don't tell them. If it's in a box, you do tell them. And the rest of it, you just teach them. And it's that simple. And if you do this once, will you be ready to do it again? And again? And again? Yes. Now this is something about the book. See how it's structured with a little line right here? Alright, watch this. This is called a lay-flat binding. It's designed so that if I drop it on the floor, the pages will not fight me. So you can lay it there in the restaurant or in your home or wherever you're discipling a person and you can relax and do what God has you there doing and not spend all your time fighting those pages. 
In the earlier editions, we fought pages. Thousands of people fighting pages every week. And we said, we've got to solve this problem. And so we bought lay-flat bindings. It costs 10% more to produce a book with a lay-flat binding. But it's worth it. And you'll notice that it has heavy, heavy, kind of a coating. Do you, you feel it on the book? That cost extra too. And that was designed so that if you get it in water or rain, the water will run off. Dust, the dust will come off. Because we want you to use this book for the next 10 years over and over and over and over every time you disciple somebody. And you'll never have to spend your money but once. Now, let's turn to the quiet time section and look at that. You'll see that it's the same in both books. The page numbers will even be the same. Page 78. When you get there, you'll see quiet time number one. This is what we want the new Christian or the new member to do the very first morning after you began to start the discipling process. And by the way, how quickly do we want to start the discipling process? As fast as you can. We did statistics. Uh, big church out in New Mexico did a three-year study. Put about 500 people through the process. The ones that we had assigned and they began to work one-on-one -on -one with them during the first week after they joined the church, 90% completed the full six months successfully and were ready to disciple somebody else. Now, if that doesn't get you all excited, I don't, your wood's wet. I don't, if you don't burn on that one. 90%. The ones that we didn't get started until the second week, whatever, however good the reason was, we noticed an amazing thing. 70% completed it and were ready to disciple somebody else. There was that big of an attrition in only one week's difference. Those that we didn't get started until the third week, only 30% of them successfully completed it, graduated, or were ready to disciple somebody else. And the Billy Graham Associations learned this a long time ago. When someone makes a decision for Christ, they are moldable, teachable, available, ready. But give Satan a week or two, and he will try every way in the world to get their attention off of the things of God and back on the things of the world and bury them in the world's problems if he possibly can. How many of you believe he's faithful? The enemy is dependable, predictable. So we want to go around him. We want to outflank him, if you please. And the way to do that is to have immediate assignments. As quick as someone joins your church and gets in your growth group, that very week, get the available discipler to call them, meet with them, and take them out to a meal or at least to a hot fudge Sunday or something. Let them get to know each other. Let them present the materials to them as a gift from the church and get started. Now you say, what kind of materials do you give to them? Not this big $25 packet. That would scare them to death. That's not what they need. That is for the discipler only. This little book is thin. It's not too intimidating. And they get this plus their journal. And you can get it with or without the suede cover. There's only $2 difference. Now the journal and this come together in a shrink wrap packet. It's about 7 or $8 with Billy Graham's tracks in there as well. You say, why do you want Steps to Peace with God in there? Because immediately we want them to be able to explain to their loved ones why they became a Christian. We want them to start witnessing from the very first week that they're a believer and we show them how and say, I can't tell you all about the decision I just made except I know that God has forgiven me. I know I've given my life to Christ. 
But Billy Graham does a beautiful job of explaining it in this little book. And I prayed this prayer, and my whole life has been changed by it. I'd love for you to read this little booklet and see what God will do for you. So they began to share just that easily, right the very first week. If you start out witnessing, are you likely not to be afraid to continue to witness? Hodges says, as you start, so you go. So we try to start them out in the right direction right off the bat. The daily quiet time is the most important thing that we get them started in. It's like nurture. It's like food. Give me this day our daily what? Bread. That's the bread is the Lord himself. So we start out in a quiet time, page 78, and we don't meet with them. They do this on their own, of course. Notice the question at the top of the page. How can you know for certain that you're a Christian and that you have what? All right. That's a relevant question, and we want to review it with them. All right, go to the second. How was your salvation made possible? Third, what does the Bible teach about the Lord's ability to keep us once we're saved? Now, let me explain something. If a Christian feels that God and Satan have equal power and they're caught in between, that's a bunch of poppycock. Satan is a fallen angel has no power except the power that was given to him by the Creator. And God has all power. And at the end of time, when God winds it all up, who's going to win? God. Who already has one on the cross for us? God. New Christians don't understand that. You need to teach them a little theology as you go along, that God is more powerful than the enemy. Do you not remember in 1 John 4, he that is within you is greater than he that is in the world. We need to teach them that. All right? Now the next one. Have you noticed a change in your attitude since you gave your life to Christ? Let me tell you, if somebody's attitudes are not being changed, I doubt if they've been saved. There's got to be some change somewhere. Is it possible in our culture to become religious but not be a Christian? You bet your bottom dollar it is. We all know that. All right? How does work fit into the process of spiritual growth? Now, this is my good Methodist uh, page. All right? If salvation is a gift from God, what's my responsibility? Robert Coleman, of course, is a wonderful Methodist theologian. and We're dearest friends. We teach together. We've just been at a seminary in Poland, team teaching together just a few months ago. And we were in Germany recently together, teaching at a seminary. And I want to tell you the thing that we need is balance. Y'all, works are important. Intuitively, new Christians know there's something I'm supposed to be doing. What am, what's work am I supposed to be doing? They need to understand you don't work your way into heaven, you faith your way into heaven. But you spend the rest of your life working, serving God. And so that's why this is in here. Now, you'll love this one. Why attend church? Why do you suppose we ask that on the sixth morning? <laughs> well, the next morning is Sunday. And we would like for them to start thinking about going to church the day before because the devil's going to come in and say, no, you don't want to be a total fanatic. You joined the church last week. You don't want to go again. Now, you can just hear him. We try to explain that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And if you want your faith to grow, you better be in church and hear the Word of God taught and preached because that's where faith grows. All right, the next one. What does the Bible teach about time management? Well, these people were already busy before they became a Christian. What is it you're asking them to do now? 
something on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, or Thursday night. We got a lot of ideas for what people ought to do with their time once they become a Christian. And we've got to help them understand that you keep the best, but you get rid of a lot of this other stuff. You've got to make some choices. All right? What happens if I sin now that I'm saved? How many of y'all still have that problem? Every one of us. So we start addressing these questions practically. Look at the bottom of the page. In the beginning, we had those blanks filled in for them, but now they've got to fill it in for themselves. My insight, my prayer for the morning. Then, if you come with me to page 93, you'll see we add application at the bottom of the page. What am I going to do about what I prayed about this morning? And we teach them that they're not only to be hearers of the word, but they're to be doers of the word. All right? Then we go along, and all of a sudden on page 104, we stop giving them anything to fill in. Where do they go? We move them out of this book into the spiritual journal. And the journal has these same blanks in it. Go to page 110. If it takes longer than 30 days for you to go through a call to joy with them, what do they do for their quiet time the next morning? They simply start over here and do these readings on page 110 each morning. So it doesn't matter how long it takes you. If it takes you two months to go through it, that's fine. Or if it takes you four months to go through it, that's fine. Because we're not in a race, and this is not some curriculum we have to finish. It is a friendship we're building. It's a relationship, that's right. So, if you go through it fast, fine. If you go through it slow, fine. The point is, is that your life has changed while you're doing it. And that you're witnessing. All right, questions you want to ask on this one? Yes? We're in a church where even the pastor has never been discipled by anybody. Would it be a good idea to just to go to a lot of people and work through this? His question was, None of us have been discipled, even including the pastor, along these lines. All of us have been informally discipled on our journey, y'all. We just don't know it. Informally, it's been happening. But formally, it really hasn't happened for a lot of us. Let me suggest this. Team up with each other, like I've suggested, and go through it and help each other learn it. Then turn around and do it for somebody else, for a new believer. Now, you say, well, Billy... We're in a church situation where we've got so many new believers, we can't wait three months to get started. I know some of you are probably in that situation. If you are in that situation, let me explain this to you. Go back and get a two or three week head start. And then you be working with your pal going through this for the 12 sessions. But go ahead and start discipling the new Christian because you're two or three weeks ahead of them and that's all that matters. You've covered the material. You know what you're going to teach them. You know what you're going to do. It just means you're doubling up on your time. You're eating one meal with the discipler that you're working with a week, and you're meeting another meal during the week with the new Christian that you're helping grow. I mean, you're going to eat anyway. Question. So you're saying use this book, and usually they don't start this one until they complete it. Right. Actually, what will happen is your instruction guide, as you go through it, will say... This would be the time to start using your journal for sermon notes. This will be the week to start using it for a quiet time. This will be the week to start using it for scripture memory, to write down the verses you're learning. We won't get to scripture memory for about, well, it's actually the beginning of the third month. And your verses, I think I've already shown you, are in the back of a call to growth on little cards, and there's four different translations. All you have to do is just tear them out. And you have a plastic 
holder for your verses that comes in your packet. So every one of them has that when they get to the place where they need it. <laughs> Good question. You do not say, would you like for me to disciple you the rest of your life? Uh, <laughs> six weeks, six months sounds like the rest of their life to them. You don't ever say that. Let me have some fun with you. When you were in grade school, if somebody told you how long it was going to take to go through college, would you have ever started? <laughs> Probably not. No, what you do is you say, let's build a friendship. The pastor's given us a little packet of material to go through together. And you go through a call to joy for a couple months with them without talking to them about call to growth. Now, when you come to the end of the call to joy, you don't say, would you like to go through four more months together in a study? Uh-uh. What you do is say, were you blessed by a call to joy? Have you grown a lot? Oh, yeah, it's just been wonderful. Well, next week you're going to like it even better because the church has given us a call to growth and we're going to go through that as our final phase of discipling together. So it's not like, would you like to? It's, this is what we expect to do, and this is how it works. Let me tell you where I learned that. I kept noticing the statistics of a church in California, in Vacaville, First Baptist, years ago. And uh, the, the very couple that were out there all those years ago called me last week in Texas. And they're still just as strong and steady in discipleship as they were 20 years ago, back when we were doing our early, early research and piloting. And in Vacaville, I noticed that they were having a 90% success ratio of people not dropping out between a call to join and a call to growth level, stage one, stage two. So I got a plane ticket, flew all the way to California, took them out to lunch, and sat down. And I said, Bob and Judy, she's a librarian, he's a mechanic. I said, you have the highest success ratio of any church in California. How are you doing it? They said, we could have saved you a plane ticket. I said, what do you mean? They said, we just expect it. <laughs> I said, you expect it? They said, yep. We tell our disciples that they're to take them through six months and that they're never to ask if they want to go into stage two. They're to expect it. And they said, you get what you expect. And I said, well, walk me through this just real clearly. And they said, when we come to the end of a call to joy, we never say. It's kind of like saying to a third grader, now you've finished the third grade. You've learned a lot. Would you like to go on with your education or stop? You wouldn't do that. You'd say... It's expected in our church that we go through the six months of training. And did you enjoy the first phase? We're looking forward to the second phase. Words to that effect. All right, excellent questions. Any more? That, <laughs> this is what we need is these good questions. This is helping. Yes. If you have a part-time pastor and... Sure. Typically, what will happen will be, if the pastor's not here and you're here, I would take him a set of materials for sure, back probably the tapes for him to listen to, and say, Pastor, 
I'm available because God has gotten my attention and my heart on this issue. And if you want me to help or if you want anybody else in our church to help, I know that they would probably be willing to. And let him pray about it and then take the lead and kind of facilitate through you what he wants to do if he can't do it. Yes. Can you revisit avoiding the two-track system where longtime members say, I don't need to do that, but then you expect your new ones to do it? <laughs> okay. This is really fun. Anywhere in the world, you're going to have a certain segment of the church that says we're not going to do it that way because we never did it that way before. Even if you can show them all the biblical models that there are. So what you want to do is you want to go with the goers. And what you'll do is pray. You'll find a few people in every Bible study group that are open to be a friend to new members. Let me use a biblical illustration right quick. Do you recall when the Lord went up Mount Carmel and he left nine of the 12 disciples down below, took three to the mountaintop with him, Peter, James, and John. Do you notice that there was no jealousy in that situation? I always thought it very interesting. If Jesus had been going to a tea party, say, at somebody's home in Jerusalem, and said, I'm going to pick three of you to go with me to dinner and to tea with the leaders of da-da-da-da-da-da, I think the other night I would have said, oh, man, look at that. He took those three again, those lucky guys. But Jesus said, I would like three of you to climb to a mountaintop and spend a full day in prayer with me. We'd like to stay down here and cast out demons. Anyway, you, you three, y'all can handle that. We'll handle this. Are you with me? Here's what I recommend to pastors. If you feel like there's going to be any problem like that, get up behind the pulpit and say, I've decided to spend some quality time sharing with you from the pulpit about discipleship and the Lord's expectations of us as Christians. And those of you that would like to enter into a one-on-one -on -one friendship relationship with new members of our church and would like to model the ministry of prayer, witnessing, giving, scripture memory, consistency, and a real walk with God. I would welcome your participation in this. And, and everyone's invited. But I'm going to handpick a few and invite them out of every Bible study group in our church to do this. But all of you are welcome. They will stay away in droves. Because it is climbing a mountain. It looks like work. But it's blessing. They just don't know it. Are y'all with me? Okay, so the deal is, is that this is the greatest thing you could ever ask people to do. But I want to tell you, they're not going to condemn you for doing it. They're just not going to want to do it. And just be happy with that. Just say, that's fine. But preach the word honestly. Let them watch it. And we have seen that some of the hard-headedest, most dissident people that you never would have thought would get on board, give it a year and they may say, you know, Pastor, I have seen so many lives change in this church, I don't even believe it. And little Johnny, what's his face over here? Look, he, he's deacon material. This guy's growing like crazy. I've got to do this. I want to get in on it. Where do I start? We have that happen all the time. All right? In A Call to Joy, you'll notice in the first portion of it that there are blanks to fill in. This is important. These blanks are not designed to be filled in alone as homework by the new Christian. 
These are designed to be filled in as you talk over a cup of coffee together in your weekly fellowship time. Our research has found out that people today, because of computers, because of television commercials, our reading skills, if anything, have gone down. I don't know what's happened, but our, our attention span is less. People get bored quicker. And we did research, and a lot of it, and we found out that we would only make our chapters seven pages long because that's about all people would read. Now, they'll buy books because they can go listen to pretty music and eat and look at pages and books and be in the ambience you know, of a beautiful bookstore. I'm sure you have them here, big ones. People are buying more books than ever before, but they're reading less of them. They put them on the shelf. They like the idea of reading a book, but they're not reading many books. So I want to say to you, they like to talk. They like to exchange ideas. They like to interact. And that's the reason this is designed to be now. What you're going to find is this is now, not yesterday. And people love it because it's designed to be relational. So don't send them home to fill in these blanks by themselves. Now later, when they get more mature, we will ask them to do that in a call to growth, but not in a call to joy. All right? A call to joy is for a new believer or a new member who hasn't been discipled elsewhere to establish a daily quiet time, a solid understanding of their own salvation experience, and the confidence that God is with them, and to learn how to take sermon notes and basically how to get started as a Christian. Then they go into call to growth. This is where they learn how to witness. This is where they learn how to pray. This is where they learn how to do Bible study. And there's some excellent Bible studies in here uh, designed for them. And this is where they learn the vision of discipling others and multiplying. Yes, sir. If I want to meet with five, can I meet with all five of this, or do you still recommend one on one? No. Let me say this. He's asking about... Uh, whether you do this in a group or pair off one-on-one, please let me underscore this for you. You'll hurt it if you try to make it a small group activity. It's just not designed for that. First, you get your coordinator or coordinators. Then you get your team leaders, one per group, and they, in turn, get the disciples in their group. So the pastor really doesn't have that much to do other than share the vision and preach on this subject matter. Alright? They get the journal and the Timothy book, Call to Joy, in a shrink wrap packet as a gift from the church the first time you meet with them as a discipler. You take it and give it to them as a gift from the church. Which they, by the way, appreciate a great deal. And you'll say to them, and the instructions will tell you to do this, take it to church with you this next Sunday, and when the pastor preaches, Write down any questions that you have that you don't understand in the sermon. And when you go to Sunday school next week, see, which presumes they are going to Sunday school. See, what we're gently doing is creating an atmosphere for success without forcing it. As you go to Sunday school next week, take notes, and I'll be there in the class with you. And we'll get together during the week, and if you don't understand something, I'll explain it. Let me use an example of my dad right quick. He was an unbeliever until he was 46. Dr. Graham led him to Christ when preaching at a layman's meeting in Texas. He went home and joined our church, was baptized, and the very next week they put him in an adult Sunday school class of men. 
on the book of Revelation. Yep. And he calls me six weeks later and he says, Son, I haven't missed Sunday school for the first six weeks I've been a Christian, but I don't understand one thing they're saying. And I didn't know what class he was in. And when he told me he was studying the book of Revelation, I nearly died. And I said, Dad, why? Oh, that was his age group, y'all. That was the only reason they put him in that class. There were 40 men in there. And Dr. Cabnus, who was the president of our university, was a marvelous Bible teacher. But I mean, they were studying the difference between literal and spiritual Israel. So I said, Dad, what question did you want to ask? Let me try to answer it for you. He said, well, they keep talking about an Old Testament and a New Testament. And he said, I know there had to be a good reason why one stopped and the other started, but I have no earthly reason why. So I explained that to him. And then, <laughs> oh man, it, to me, it, can you all believe that we do this stuff? That church had prayed for my father's conversion for 20 years. He gets saved and they rejoice and just nearly kill him. Put him in a class on Revelation. I said, Daddy, why didn't you raise your hand and ask that in class? I just wanted to see what he'd say. He said, Billy, my banker's in that class, my real estate guy, my insurance man. He said, I'm not going to make an idiot of myself in front of 40 men sitting there and ask a question. Those guys have been there since Noah built the ark, you know, and I'm a newcomer. I'm a brand new Christian. Is that real, y'all? Sure, it's real. So what it amounts to is we want to take a tutor, if you please, by putting somebody one-on-one -on -one to work with a new member in the class. It wouldn't matter if you're in the Old Testament or you're in Galatians or you're in Book of Numbers or you're in Joshua or what. They're not going to understand it. They're just not going to understand it. I had this happen in college. I remember walking into a Bible study group and I had led an old boy to Christ. His name was Ellington Darden. And L. Darden walks into the group L, you may know now, he's written 14 books and has two doctorates, and he's the Nautilus guy in weightlifting. He's world famous in his field. But L was a brand new Christian. I just led him to the Lord, and I got him to a group Bible study. And a friend of mine was reading the Scripture and said, and your old man has died. And he was emphasizing that. And L came out and put his arm around him, and he said, I'm so sorry I, I love my dad, and I know losing yours was really tough. And this guy could not understand what L was talking about. But L thought his father died, and he was trying to explain, <laughs> explain the doctrine and the theology in Romans. So new believers come in, and they're just, there they are, and they just take every word literally, and they just don't understand. You have to explain this religious language. So when we hook a discipler up with a trainee, they whisper in their ear and help them with hundreds of things like that. Okay. We have a big job ahead of us, don't we? Amen. Remember the verse we started with? Our Lord said, my food, my satisfaction is what that means, is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish the work. Amen. You and I stand on the precipice of a great adventure. You're going to go back just like my buddy did in West Texas who wanted to leave his church and it looked pretty bleak. And he prayed for one man and God gave him two. You may go back praying for two and get four. I'll guarantee you there's somebody back there waiting for you to start praying and looking. You've got some people that mean business and want to make a difference in the world. 
And when you go back prepared to get down to a one-to-one basis with them and to give them some help, they're going to respond with a great deal of appreciation. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be fulfilling. And it's going to work. Now, will they ever disappoint you? Yes, you will have some heartaches along the way. You have with your own children. I have with mine. Just part of life. Now, I want to encourage you all. You'll have some Timothys. They're straight arrows. You'll have some Marks. They'll start out well, flop, and then pick up and go again. And you'll have a few Demas who leave you for the love of this world. May you not have many of them. That'll be my prayer for you. Pray that you and I will both be faithful to the finish. And that when we get to the end, the Lord will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. We can't do this for each other. Wish we could. You're where God puts you. I'm where God put me. And we both got to tell our part of the garden. Let's join hands, please, up and down these aisles. And we'll close in prayer together.